still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends And welcome back to another power-washed edition of Jim Cornette's drive through right here On this fall's day, it's cold, it's damp, or maybe warm It's gonna be in the 70s here this weekend depending on where you are in the continental United States or around the world. I'm your host, the great Brian Last, and here he is, the man who will answer your questions, review some stuff, talk about some stuff, and who knows what trouble he'll get into. Mr. Jim Cornette. Well, you didn't give the due point, Brian, but I was expecting you to then pitch to the sports report after the meteorological information that you passed out there just now. It is, it's, oh, Halloween weekend is over. The only day of the year when you can go out and feel normal, as I said to David Crockett one time on TBS. Uh, Halloween weekend is over. I had a wonderful anniversary weekend, a couple of tremendous dinners. It didn't start out good on Saturday. I got to tell you about this because I haven't told you about this yet. Brian, I'm talking you. I'm not talking the royal you now, the cult of Cornette, the people out there. I'm talking you, Brian Last. I have not even told you about that. I didn't even have to leave the property Saturday morning. I did tell you on Sunday, we talked briefly on the phone. I said, well, Saturday morning by 10 o'clock, I had screamed and cussed at somebody and banished them from the fucking property forever. And by seven o'clock that night, I was having one of the best meals I've ever had. And I said, I wonder what the people would think if they knew that. And you, you said something like they would think it was Tuesday for you. Just a normal thing. Just another normal Jim Cornette day. Hey, that's not true. I don't scream at people a lot anymore without sufficient provocation. But let me tell you about some provocation. You said so anymore. You, you said anymore. Do you think anymore? Do you agree that you may have in the past yelled at people without sufficient provocation? No, I just did it. I just had a lot more <laughs> constant and uh, numerous sufficient provocation. Because I actually associated with people back then. If you associate with somebody, anybody long enough, you've got sufficient provocation to scream and yell and cuss at them. It just depends. Or at least if you, there are certain people that might be immune from that, but if you just deal with, oh God, large numbers of people, like say in person, four or five people a week, that's a large number for then sooner or later, you're going to be screaming. Nevertheless, Brian, you know I've been having a lot of work done, and that's why in your little snide comment in the open of the show, we were about to 
record this program about an hour ago, and suddenly the the painting crew showed up to pressure wash some parts of the house to begin the painting process. And now that my remodel is hopefully coming to a close, except for interior details, we're getting a house painted. And this has been planned, but not for today. And suddenly they show up and the the thing is running and the water's hitting and it's making all kinds of noise. And we were delayed slightly. And you're apparently miffed at that with your little passive aggressive commentary. Wasn't passive aggressive and I'm not miffed at all. I thought it was funny. Made me laugh. Thought it would make you laugh and it did make you chuckle. It gave me a little titter. I tittered. A titter. A titter. titter. I tittered. All right. Well, let's toddle on. But nevertheless, so anyway, so I've been having work done and one, and uh, you know, also, I've talked about this. I've had the Monroe brothers out in the yard. They've been working on my stonework and my mulch beds. They do a lot of stuff for me. I've been having the remodel done, but I've still been using the same individual and his gang of merry misfits that's been cutting my grass for several years. And the reason for this is very simple. Because I do not have room for a mower and all the apparatus that goes along with a lawnmower when my garage is already, I can't even put my vehicles in my garage because it's full of action figures and or things related to this remodel or whatever on a constant basis. And there's this one goof, and his name is Landon, and you'll need to remember that later on. You're going to be hearing it a lot. He has the trucks and the trailers and the mowers and the equipment and the stooges to come out here and mow this yard. And even though he does, I, he's very cheap and I get what I pay for, he's a complete imbecile. I mean, if it was raining soup, he'd be out in the yard with a fork. And his minions that work for him, there's this one... One fellow's Hispanic. He's got an excuse. There's nothing wrong with being Hispanic, but it, English might not be his first language. But then the other guy, he looks about as English as a motherfucker can look, and they both will just stand and stare at you when you try to talk to them like you've got turds hanging out of your mouth. Then they don't know what the fuck you, and they just go on to do what they're going to do anyway. And he's done a piss poor job, but I have the Monroes go over and around and clean up behind him with some, but I've been using the mowers and the convenience of his truck and trailer, right? But this year, since we had done so much work, I told him, and I started talking to him about this a couple months ago, I don't want to mulch the leaves this year. I want to do like the big boys do down at the big house on the corner, the big new house they built down on the corner of the road. I've seen them out there, and I've read about this on the internet, and I've talked to people. You blow them up, and you gather them up on a tarpaulin or one of those cyclone leaf rakes or all these commercials you're seeing. Do they have those commercials up there in the big city, Brian, for the cyclone leaf rake? I don't know if I've seen that one. It's where the guy is mowing his yard. He's riding his little riding mower. It looks like there's not a drop of sweat coming off of him. And you know he's he's hitting all them holes and the mole runs and he's shaking his kidneys. But he's mulching the leaves and it vacuums them up in the thing that he's hauling along behind him. And then you just, it, it's like, it's it's a vacuuming of your yard. You haven't seen that commercial. I have not seen that commercial. Well, you don't watch a lot of TV then. It's every third commercial down here. But maybe... 
up there in the city, you people don't have wildlife and leaves and things. Every third commercial appears a lawyer. Well, that's true. You actually, you got plenty of wildlife. It's bears. That's why they all want to sue. Anyway, I tell Landon, I said, Landon, I don't want to mulch the leaves this year. I got so many trees on one, one side of the house in the back. In the corner there, especially in a, the, all that leaf mulch from the last several years, it has just stayed because it's so much. It kills the grass. It clogs the creek. It gets everywhere. Like they do it down there, I want to blow them, put them on a tarp, put them in a truck, suck them up, vacuum, <laughs> whatever you got to do, right? Right. You want to blow them and suck them up. Blow them and suck them. Whatever you, here's what I told him. I said, and this was one month and four days ago now. I said, whatever you need to do, get me a plan and a price. That's what I want to do. And you know me, Brian, when I'm telling people something that I want, I'm not usually an ambiguous person. I'm pretty specific, right? Yeah. So I'm t I am told this little weasel that I said, come up with a plan and a price. Now, if you, if you're in the business of cutting yards and he does the people next to me and he does cross the street and he does a bunch of other stuff I don't even know about and don't care to find out. But what are you saying? Well, I'm saying other people's yards and grass cutting and things. He does, he does this. This is not just some fucking asshole out for a fucking hobby on the afternoon. It's supposed to be what he does for a living for a business. So if somebody says to you, this is what I want done. Come up with a plan and a price. What do you do? I submit a plan with a price. A price? Yeah. Well, that was beyond him. Because that I told him that in person, and he left. And then two weeks later, I ain't heard a goddamn word from him on the phone. And he sends some new fat guy that I've never seen before that's never mowed any of these yards. Not a new fat guy. A new fat guy. And he's the, but he's the only one I've ever asked a question of that I got a response from. The other ones, like I said, just stare at you like they're one of the fucking Darlin brothers on the Andy Griffith show. I said, so anyway, he sends a fat guy over and I look, I see he's mowing the yard next door. And I'm thinking, well, I've never seen this guy before. I wonder if my neighbor over there got him a new yard guy. And then the guy comes around and comes into my yard. He starts, now bear in mind, at this point, it has not rained. In this town for over three weeks at that point, that's two, two and a half weeks ago. And the grass has not grown and some of the leaves have fallen, but it's just enough to where if you try to mow this, all you're going to get is dust and you're going to chop up leaves and spread them everywhere. It's got, he's, he looked like the Tasmanian devil in the yard next to me. All the dust flying everywhere. The grass is almost dead. <clears throat> so he comes over. I got to chase him down from behind. He can't hear me screaming, stop, stop. I tap him on the shoulder. What? I said, what are you doing? I'm mowing. I said, I'm aware <laughs> of that. I said, did Landon send you? Yeah. I said, I told him two weeks ago that I don't want to mulch the leaves this year, that I want to blow them and suck them up in some fashion. He's supposed to be getting me a plan and a price. It hasn't rained here in over three weeks. Look at this. You can't tell what you've just run over with the mower versus the other part, except that you've chopped up some of the leaves. Let's not do that. You're blowing dust everywhere. Have Landon call me. I'll call Landon. He's pulling out his phone. I said, we'll do that. 
And then I never, he leaves. I never hear from Landon. So then last week, 10 days ago, whatever, I call, I leave a message for Landon. Landon, now the wind and the rain that we had for the first time in six weeks has taken the a lot of the leaves down. What is your plan for leaf removal as we've spoken about this, this year? No call back. Guess what I saw Saturday morning, Brian? What's that? I saw Landon. Landon and his stooges. And they showed up. And they are out in front of the in the front yard by the road, and they're starting they're blowing with these blowers. They're blowing all the leaves behind the fence and everything. And I'm thinking, okay, he's got a plan. He didn't want to tell me about it. But I guess, and I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't see any tarps. I don't see any truck. I see his trailer with his mowers, and he's mowing and mulching the leaves in the yard next to me. I said, when he comes over here, I guess I'll have to ask him what he's doing. And guess what he did? He bops around the fence. I see who I think is Landon. And he's on the mower and he's going up the fence row in my yard, mulching up all the leaves. As they're blowing on one side, he's mulching leaves on the other side. So I go out there and now he's in the back and I'm trying to run catch again. And I go and tap him on the shoulder, and he turns around. It's not Landon. It's the Hispanic fellow that stares at me like I have steaming turds in my mouth. And I repeat the question, what are you doing? And he stares at me. Where's Landon? And he stares. I said, Landon. And he points that away. Apparently, Landon is over somewhere on my neighbor's property. Well, now I've already walked 500 feet to catch this son of a bitch. Now I got to walk 500 feet back to the house and fucking go get my phone, try to call Landon, who's apparently somewhere within a 1,500 or 2,000 foot perimeter of me because he showed up and he knows I'm home. The garage door's open, lights are on, and he's still not decided to tell me what he's going to do about my fucking leaves. So I call him and guess what I get? Voicemail. I said, Landon. Call me about these leaves or just come over here. And then I look out about 10 minutes later and there he is putt-putting up the drive in his mower because apparently one of his stooges has told him I was looking for him. And I go out there, I said, Landon, I've been calling you. What is the plan? What are you doing today? I see the guy over on the other side blowing He's blowing the leaves out from underneath the trees. I see the other guy over here on the mower mulching up the leaves that we talked about not mulching. You're supposed to give me a plan and a price. What's going on? Well, well, we do a combination of blowing and mulching. I said, no, that's what you've been doing every year, which is what I told you over a month ago. We didn't want to do this year. And you're going to come up with me a plan and a price of how to vacuum or suck or blow all these leaves. These are a lot of leaves. I said, I'm aware of that. Several acres worth. That's why I talked to you about this over a month ago, and I've been mentioning it. So you could come up with something. And he, I said, what the fuck was your plan? I said, every third commercial that I have seen is for the cyclone leaf rake. 
oh, those things are about $4,000. I said, okay, then I can buy one and stick it in my garage. We could use it every fall. I just came up with a plan in five seconds. This is your business, and you have not called me back with any plan. Were you going to, again, just do what you always do and not tell me and ignore all my phone calls? And then after the fact, you would think that was a good thing. Hum and hum and hum and hum and hum. And bear in mind, I'm talking to you, Brian, to bear this in mind. I'm not telling him this. Bear in mind, this fucking idiot has obviously not made one effort to investigate whether he could rent anything, as I mentioned, or whether he had it, or whether he had an idea in his fucking empty head. Right? So as I tell you, and now that I've said all this, not only has he ignored what I asked for, not only has he ghosted me on phone calls, not only has he sent people over twice to do what I asked him not to fucking do without telling me that he had put no effort whatsoever into figuring out what I wanted him to do, regardless of how much money he was going to charge me, I didn't give a shit. So he's a complete blithering simpleton, right? So I say, you know what? Here's the thing, because I knew I was vibrating. And at this point, I was neither cussing him nor screaming, but I was indignant. I, I tell you what, here's the deal. today. The dog's got to shits. I've got my anniversary dinner tonight. I'm very behind on my action figures. And I'm standing <laughs> here in the goddamn driveway talking about this to you weeks and weeks and weeks after we first started and we ain't no further along. So when you figure out a plan and a price to do what I would like you to do, get back with me. Otherwise, don't do nothing today, because I know I need to go, because I'm going to start screaming at this motherfucker and potentially snatching him around the throat. And as I say that and walk back in the garage, I hear him in his little droopy sad sack voice as he's meandering back over to his putt-putt mower, Oh, Jim, I guess I'm just going to be quitting on you. And I stopped in my tracks, and slowly I turned, step by step, inch by inch. Actually, no, I stopped in my tracks, and then it wasn't slow. I spun around and said, you know what, motherfucker? I've been waiting for you to do that. I've been waiting for you to do that because you gave up on this job a long fucking time ago, you blithering simpleton, you fucking moron. Have I ever argued with you about money or not paid you? No, I would have paid you more, but you do such a shitty fucking job. Why do you think I have these other guys out here? Because they want to work and they want to make money and they know what they're fucking doing. They're not brick-headed simpletons like you and that cast of nitwits. I want you to get the fuck off this fucking property and don't ever goddamn come back. And you know what he did? He got on his little mower and he putt-putted the fuck on out of here. And now, in addition to signing action figures and blah, 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 I've had to call the guy that planted some stuff for me earlier this summer, right before the drought, 
to see if he could find a guy that he knows that could come over here and do the leaves professionally, which I'm awaiting that phone call now. And this little fucking prick can go piss up a rope and about got drug off his fucking mower and beheaded with the blades. So that's the way I started Saturday. You got a good yard guy, Brian? Yeah, my guy's all right. I'm not happy with him right now, actually, funny enough, but usually he's pretty good. Well, nevertheless, at least he didn't turn a mower up on my fence. That's about the only good thing I can say about this fucking guy. Has that happened to you? Well, the the Mustang on the fence. See, at least he didn't put the must, you know, like the car ended up on right. my fence. He didn't end yeah. up the mower on my fence. He's done every other stupid thing. But you didn't get that, so it, it fell flat. I never know with you and these experiences you have over at Cornet or Castle Cornet and Cornet Creek and Cornet. And, and see, and- that's the thing is I don't yell at people because I have <laughs> I interact with so few of them these days. But goddamn, you still can't find somebody that can scratch their ass both hands. I'm pretty sure like two out of the last five or two out of every five stories about you at the house involve you yelling at someone. The Mustang story was you yelling at someone. Well, yeah, but I didn't invite them. That doesn't See, that disqualify was, that was, the yelling. That was a complete intrusion. And now this motherfucker that I was giving money to, giving employment to feeding his children if he has any. I can't imagine how fucking ignorant they would be if he does. But I've been, I've been doing that and this fucking guy. And that fucking guy and the other fucking guy. But I'll tell you what. The day ended well. Do you know where I had dinner? Oh, on Saturday night, I, we had to do Saturday night, even though our anniversary it was Monday was Halloween because this restaurant's not open on me. You know why this restaurant's not open on Sunday or Monday? No. They give the staff Be- day off? No, because they only serve fresh, never frozen seafood and delectable items. And if they can't get deliveries from overnight on Sunday and Monday because of the weekend they choose not to give people subpar stuff it comes in at this i'm telling this fish has not only never been frozen it actually in in the places that it lives it had a thermostat that's how comfortable this fish you could tell this fish and this beef and everything else was comfortable until the day they met their maker pampered even place it called brendan's catch 23 and it is in downtown Louisville on 4th Street. And it's a fine seafood establishment, but they also have incredible steaks. And that's where we went for our anniversary dinner. And I, for the first time in I don't know how long, was able to pleasantly surprise Stacy with something. Because I surprise her often, but generally it's with you know, a silent but deadly fucking killer or something like that, you know, where it's not a pleasant surprise. This one was a pleasant one. You said you're moving out. No, hey, come on now. Hey. No, actually, I told her that she could move out. No. um, Hey. No, it was a pleasant surprise. But she knew we had a reservation. That's where we were going for dinner. But she did not know that under cover of darkness weeks ago, I had arranged for one of the private dining areas in Brendan's to be held for us that evening and had populated that self-same private dining area with enough foliage and floral fauna 
that it looked like the goddamn jockey that just won the Kentucky Derby was going to be celebrating in there. When they walked us to the room, people were looking around like, are they going to where all the flowers are? And uh, and we had a view out of our, well, we had a, a curtain that we could close and eliminate the outside world, but instead we left that open because we had a view of the outside of the open kitchen area and the facilitating area could be, you know, we like to watch shit like that. So we could draw that and be private, or we can watch the, the highly trained staff do their thing, which is fascinating. But I'll tell you what, the, uh, not only uh, several of these things were the best and think about how many places I've eaten in the world, Brian, or in the country. I won't say the world. I went to England they had food there. I remember, I remember the smell. <laughs> but think how many restaurants I've eaten at in this country, shitty places and fine dining alike. It is not often that I go to one place that has two or three or more of the best examples of that thing that I've ever had. The filet mignon was not only perfectly cooked; it lit. You could. It was like I was cutting it with a surgical scalpel. It just fell apart. I mean, just fantastic. They make all their own sauces. This is not even a paid announcement, folks. I got the 10-ounce filet with the Bernays sauce with an add-on order of the giant sea scallops that were perfectly sautéed, just the perfect sear. And they were just like butter. And then also a, 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 a skewer of grilled shrimp and also a crab cake. And with the mac and cheese, that is four different kinds of cheeses, scratch made with bacon crumbles, was the best mac and cheese I've ever had. The herb and Romano roasted potatoes. Holy jumping catfish. They were amazing. And Stacy had the Chilean sea bass that was apparently in Chile about six o'clock that morning. It was so fresh it almost fined her. You know they're pulling all that shit out of the river, right? No, not the Ohio River. I know you, every, anything that comes out of the Ohio River glows a certain color that you can tell. But no, this I recommend this rest. It was amazing. We were there for like three and a half hours. Uh, just, and the service is, I mean, I know we had a private room and he, he was doing a lot of egregious sucking up, but the service, they're all trained well. It's a dining experience, uh, the, but the food is incredible. Just everything on the menu. You're going to make a somewhat serious financial commitment. So just don't go before the goddamn U of L game or whatever. But if it's a special occasion, or whatever, or you're doing some sucking up to your intended betrothed or whatever. This this it's a great place. But I ate like I was going to the chair. All right. Well, speaking of chairs, we have no chair transitions this week. So. Is this your show? Are you uh, running this fucking? Let me get, yeah. let me get a couple of things in just to let to be like I haven't already. Uh, uh, you know that of course the September seventeenth on sale date of the. Official Jim Cornette action figures just slammed everybody, but I'll have you know that if you ordered on September 17th, all 800 of you motherfuckers is how many it was, all the orders from September 17th have either been delivered, shipped, or the last 
hundred are in the hands of the feather bottoms, and we're working on the backlog from there. And it's not nearly as as uh, egregious as the first one was. So we expect to have everything cleared by Thanksgiving, where I will be giving thanks that I have everything cleared. Now, remember, there's no waiting on the T-shirts and the autograph pictures and the behind-the-curtain graphic novels, Cult Cornet membership certificates, due to the Feather Bottoms special sorting system, but the action figures will be taken care of in the next... What it were... Geez, we're less under four weeks from Thanksgiving. Holy mackerel, how time flies, except if we think that, imagine how the turkeys feel. And uh, real quickly, Tales from the Territories. I still haven't seen the Florida episode, but um, Stampede is taking place tonight as we speak, and next week, I believe, they said something about Portland. But Crockett and uh, Jim Crockett Promotions and the Carolinas is still coming up, and I am featured in some fashion on that, to my understanding. 10 o'clock Eastern on Tuesday nights on Vice TV for Tales from the Territories. And also, thank you, everyone, once again, for whatever I trended for on Twitter while I was watching horror movies on Halloween with my wife and dog. But I trended again. I don't know why. Yeah, it's not really special anymore. You know, the special, you, can't, you know, here's what it is. This is an example. Remember the first couple of times, oh, I'm trending. Well, that's nice. Now it's like, it's the same thing as like, oh, a backstage attack, an abduction. Somebody goes through a table. Eh, it's Tuesday. It's just normal, commonplace. I don't, li- I don't like to associate with the common people. I, if I can't, if I can't like number one trend with a bullet, then I don't want to trend at all. Speaking of Twitter, what do you think of the news that's gone around since Elon Musk has purchased Twitter that they're going to start selling for $20 a month the blue check mark? <laughs> Even people who already have it yes. or are distinguished, they will have to begin paying, again, purportedly, $20 a month to continue to maintain the status of blue check mark. Well, then, and I just saw this morning on somebody tweeted on Twitter. Stephen King, I think it was, wrote, well, I'm not going to pay that. And Elon Musk wrote him back and said, well, what, what about $8? Now, Elon, I thought Elon Musk was supposed to be Richard and goddamn King Solomon, and he's out here negotiating the price of a checkmark on Twitter with noted authors. Um, I've got a checkmark. I told you how I got my checkmark, right? But it's been several years. Do you remember? Did you care then? Uh, it was, I believe, someone from the UK. If I remember correctly. Yes. And, yeah. and here's the, the, but the deal for the younger listeners, the newer people, is that I wondered why. Well, I didn't wonder. Stacy wondered. Because when I got Twitter, was she set it up for me, I think, when we got the website. And then every once in a while, we'd be in the car and I'd say, well, why don't you tweet that? But I never actually tweeted anything myself or even went to the screen myself until I had about 60,000 followers. And then I can't remember what instigated me to do it, but I think it was when we started the podcast. Then I started getting, so I've got the Twitter here on my computer, right? Because I don't have the smartphone and never shall. So then Stace noticed that somebody, when she had set up my Twitter account, somebody had gotten Jim Cornette at Jim Cornette and put my picture up and they had like 20 followers or whatever. 
And so she she contacted or whatever the customer service that you do for Twitter and said, well, why, why is this guy allowed to impersonate my husband? And it, it, can't he have this or why can't he have this or whatever the fuck? And you know what they they said? Well, can you can your husband prove he's him? And she said, well, the goddamn guy that I'm talking about didn't have to. Why should he have to? So she just made it at the Jim Cornette, which is what it is, and bypassed that. But then people started wondering and asked me, why aren't you verified? You are who you say you are. And you have, at that point, I had a hundred and whatever thousand followers. And I still can't figure out, I, I know there's a way you can go and see the list, but I'm not going to fucking count. But I'd love to know how many people I blocked because I block Republicans as a matter of course and smart asses. And there's so many of those. I probably block more people than anybody else on fucking Twitter. But anyway, say so that why don't you have the check mark? I don't care about the check mark, but uh, well, what do you have to do to get the check mark? So, I can't remember whether it was Stacy or whether by that point it was somebody, whoever, uh, they might have been the young man that was helping me with some technological stuff at that point before he got a real job. They checked and they said, well, you got to do this, net, and the other thing. And I'm like, what the fuck? And or you can pay a company that will verify, that will submit to Twitter whatever they consider to be valid documentation to verify you. And it costs like, I can't remember a few hundred dollars, several hundred dollars or whatever. And so I said something on the show about it. I said, can you imagine they actually have businesses, people that are in business to talk to Twitter and for a fee, they will get Twitter to verify that you are indeed the person you are. It's a big work. It's a big scam. And I made fun of it. And then some guy from the United Kingdom said, well, I'm one of those people that does this. And I got such a kick out of your goddamn dissertation on how this is such a big work and a big scam that I'm going to get you done for free. And that's what he did. <laughs> he got my check mark for free. I don't know how he did it. I don't know who he talked to. And, you know, I think at this point, everybody knows it's me. If it, the check mark goes away, I don't care. Will you pay if, $20 a month for it? Of course not. And I, I wouldn't pay $20 a month for fucking Twitter. It's goddamn, it would, it, if, everybody's upset about Elon Musk, and I know Mick Foley's already deleted himself or whatever. I have not had time, because I've been signing action figures, and it's not been my week to be appointed to watch him. I haven't had time to keep up with Elon Musk, positive or negative, good, bad, or indifferent. But people are up in arms. If he lets Donald Trump back on Twitter, then we know he's a piece of shit. And if he doesn't, I could give a fuck because most of the people on Twitter aren't real anyway. And we've pretty much already recognized who all the real people are on Twitter that we know and we like and we interact with. It's a picture of a person with a some type of name that you doesn't involve 16 numbers. And they've got more than seven followers. Hey, if I can ask you about that, though, that's one of the arguments that Elon Musk or people who uh, believe in what he's doing here are making is that 
By doing this, by trying to get more people verified, you reduce the number of bots, but also by charging for it, because remember, Twitter doesn't make money. By charging for it, Twitter will It's actually, not my fault they had a fucking bad idea to do something that don't make money. Well, that was going to be my, my second part of this. They need to make some money. They're hoping this will be something that will generate the revenue because enough people will be desperate to be verified that they'll pay for this. Should Twitter be a utility? Oh, good God. No, a utility should be... <sighs> should have some element of necessary function, don't you think? A telephone company, uh, electric company, gas company. Direct verified um, communication. Hold on. Well, but no, you can make that claim for internet, Wi-Fi, but not for fucking Twitter. I mean, you know, it's not like that anybody's passing along fucking sensitive information except in the wrestling business and all the insiders spill their guts it's not like <laughs> you're you know telling your kid learn at home make sure they've got they're hooked up to twitter so they can do their home schooling no and somebody well when stacy told me said mick deleted his twitter because of um and of course remember mick was the first one to go home when when vince screwed brett and mick is He's a and he was the first one to come back after Vince screwed Brett. Well, because he because he was actually the only one besides family members that left, so he kind of had to come back unless he stayed. But he's just incredibly nice. But I look at that like, why am I? You know, I I like Twitter in terms of being able to send stuff out to the people that follow us on here's our new clips or here's what's going on or retweet some of the funny things that they send or some of the classic wrestling clips. So that's, you know, but it's not like that you couldn't do without fucking Twitter in your life for fuck's sake. It would probably save you about me. It'd save me about 30 or 45 minutes a day when I get up in the morning and scroll through everything and see what's going on. And then I, I know you're going to be tweeting something later on. So I'll come back to it every so often, but a lot of people are on here a lot. Oh, yeah. And they could probably, you know, find other hobbies, but it's not a necessity of life. And that's the thing is, I told Stace, I said, well, if Mick has deleted his account because he's afraid that Elon Musk is going to be a fucking, you know, greedy billionaire and let Trump or criminals or liars such as him back on here to spread bullshit and cause trouble for the whole country. I can see him taking a stand, but the thing is, that's kind of like there being a shitty newspaper and you decided not to write a letter to the editor of that newspaper telling him what a shitty fucking newspaper he's running. That would be, to me, what what are they going to kick Mick off Twitter for knocking Twitter? How would that be received by the general populace? Talk about the McMahons. You want to be mad at people? Talk about the people you actually know. <laughs> How about that? But but that that's the thing is, I would rather if he puts Donald Trump back on or, you know, lets this right-wing bullshit go on that is, you know, actually now causing, well, already has started causing violence. But besides that, it just makes these simple-minded fucks believe that there's a goddamn you know, emergency going on in the country that they have to go out in their tinfoil hats and their revolutionary war outfits and right the wrong. That's dangerous. That's yelling fire in a crowded theater. That shouldn't be allowed. 
but if, if but if you can if you have any validation whatsoever in a in in the fact that a statement you're making is truthful then that should be allowed but not just shit just to stir up these dipshits that have already caused enough fucking trouble i think unfortunately twitter for a lot of lonely people has become a life validator a lot of people who have no communication with the outside world don't leave their house it's become something where all of a sudden they have a powerful voice now of course if you met this now person, wait a minute now wait a minute See, now you just started describing me and then you took a left turn. Well, I wasn't describing you. I wasn't, are, but you don't, tweet, don't but associate you have, with people, no, never but, leave the house. But you have a healthy relationship with Twitter. The people who have hundreds of thousands of tweets and they're nobodies, they're just yearning for contact. That's where it's like, okay, these people have unhealthy relationships with this thing and it's become a life validator and it's sad. And then you have people who use it for dissemination and we're guilty of that too we use it to get out our shows and various things me i just like it for reading baseball news and politics news and economic news but that's just me i don't i i don't understand if 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 twitter just vanished tomorrow people would still be able to function in their lives and we would still do this show and other things would still happen it's it's it, like you said it's a place to advertise things and send out funny you know memes as the kids say and things like that but this is not a crucial lifeline in in this country or any other civilization is it these days i think to some of the lonely people they think it is it's their only well this is for all the lonely people who tweet way more than they should don't give up until you Vonnegut wrote that book and it was brilliant about the guy who ran for president saying that he would cure loneliness. <laughs> and that was it. You know, it was, how do you cure loneliness? But he promised it. And it is one of our great problems. You know what? I'll tell you what, I'll never vote for that motherfucker. I have been waiting my whole life to be rich enough and successful enough and old enough and bored enough to sit at home and be nice and lonesome. And nobody's going to take that away from me. Well, there's something different between lonesome and lonely, wouldn't you say? Well, I guess there is, because it doesn't make sense. It's for all the lonesome people. It just doesn't fit. Lonely does fly off the tongue better. That's right. Well, perhaps if you're... Oh, and by the way, speaking of my tongue... No, let's not. John fell in Baltimore. Uh, I'll tell you what, he did the best thing for mine and Stacy's tongues both, because that was Saturday night dinner I mentioned, by the way, at Brendan's. But Halloween night, we were right here in the castle... And I cooked the big old ribeyes, and we had some G&M crab cakes that John Fell sent us, which he does each year as a habit for to celebrate our anniversary. And they are the, that's the only thing at Brendan's that wasn't the best that I've ever had, because G&M crab cakes are the best crab cakes I've ever had. I've been to Baltimore, I've had crabs, I've done it all, and these are the best crab cakes. And they come and they come and you just put them in the oven, boom, and, and they're delicious, tremendous. So we had two big dinners. Thank you, John Fell. All right, now I'm done. Well, I was going to say, perhaps if you're lonely, one of the reasons is you're very hairy. And there is something you can do about that. And I'm not talking about John Fell. You know, well, and, and I have no knowledge of whatever John does in the privacy of his own home or his crotch. 
to do with uh, that would be between him and his lovely wife, who is equally assigned an NDA on that very subject and is not allowed to comment, even though they asked her <laughs> in the course of the investigation, John Fell's wife could not comment on his grooming. However, in Baltimore, in Baltimore, after that fucking rotten transition, folks, we should say that Thanksgiving is coming up. It's it's close. It's almost here. And boy, you're going to be thankful because this holiday season no longer will you be trimming your balls with howls of golly because you're not, you're not going to be, oh, now see, that's not even in the coffee. And that's why it popped you because you are not going to be nicking yourself and cutting yourself and slicing arteries and bleeding out all over your mother-in-law's, you know, fine carpet in her bathroom or wherever the case it may be where you're trying to chop all those weeds off your crotch and you make a mistake. That's not going to happen this year. You know, bleeding to death is the number one way that most people screw up holiday parties at their in-laws house. Were you aware of that? I'm not aware of that. Are you aware of that? Is that an actual proven statistic that, or are you that pulling is a that stati- out? Of- that's a statistic that I just verbalized right here and I don't know what the fuck else I've got to do. But I'll tell you what, man, if you're wanting to trim your pumpkins and make sure your turkey and its stuffing are looking like dessert and smelling like Thanksgiving dinner, you got to have the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 this time of year, don't you? I say, do you? I would think so. I guess so. I would say you do. You certainly do. If your holiday spread's good now, imagine what it's going to look like when you've got it all cleaned up. Spread this. Spread this, son of a gun. <laughs> Performance Package 4.0 has the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the co- Crop or the Cop Preserver. If you're a cop, <laughs> you need preserving. The Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant. You just you roll this on your balls, and your balls will roll around there smooth and 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 not not smelling stinky. The Crop Reviver Toner, the Performance Boxer Briefs, a travel bag to hold all your goodies. I'm talking about the Performance Package 4.0. Now, you already have a bag to hold your other goodies. But it's a literally a cornucopia of your, your gonad supplies down there. And, you know, the Lawnmower 4.0 has that cutting-edge ceramic blade, but that's the only time we're going to use the word cut in this thing because... It's cutting-edge technology that won't cut your edges or even your wrinkles or sags or droops or folds or whatever the fuck else you got down there. That's what the problem is. When you're going in there with one of Landon's riding mowers and trying to navigate those close turns around your mulch beds, that's where these things sometimes go sideways. And the aforementioned statistic about bleeding to death, ruining your in-law's holiday party comes into play. But with the Performance Package 4.0 and also the Weed Whacker, you can stick this thing up your nose, in your ear, down your throat. I don't know if you've got... No. Well, if you got hair in your throat, chances are you need to... See a doctor, but you could use this in your nose and your ears. That part is correct. That is correct. Well, to see a doctor if it's your own hair. If it's somebody else's hair, just quit being nasty. (laughs) And folks, again... You can take a shower with the with the Manscaped 
refined body wash and the brand new signature body buffer. Yeah. That's the lost buffer cousin. There was Michael, there was Bruce and Bruce and now Body. Bruce. Body, it was body Bruce buffer. buffer. Yes. <laughs> body buffer. <laughs> and he'll say it's then let's get ready to No 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 no. That's a trademark catchphrase. You can't use that. Oh, we'll get in trouble. I can't. Well, and let's not get ready to manscape. <laughs> no, no, we want to talk about manscaping again. No, well, manscaped. let's, they are the let's ones get ready to about. get sued. <laughs> Folks, you can give yourself the lather and rinse that your body deserves and then potentially repeat if you are so inclined. Lose the loofah and exfoliate your mates down there in the jungle, down in the jungle room. Well, we're walking in manscaped. We're walking with our crotch hair on the floor. Folks, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. When you use the code DRIVE, be thankful this holiday season for the best gift of all from Manscaped. That is, if you clean yourself up enough and you don't stink too bad, you don't have hair all over everywhere, you might actually get laid without having to pay for it. And I know everybody gives thanks for that. Manscaped.com. That's right, Jim. Manscaped. And before we move further with the show, we're going to, I guess, do some reviews here. Yes, but before we, before we move any further with the show, you haven't noticed that the pressure washing crew is apparently back from lunch, <laughs> but they they're over on the other side now. You shouldn't hear too much of them. Well, we'll see how we do. Now I'm listening for it. Now this is going to ruin the show, but Jim, pressure crew or not, have you been feeling rather oozy lately? Oh, I've been feeling oozy. Let me tell you something. I never thought that I would say this, but I think now Sami Zayn is my favorite person to watch on television. El Generico certainly wasn't, but Sami Zayn is incredible. And this whole thing with the bloodline and the Usos and the Usis, obviously SmackDown this past Friday night, and I this is one of only a couple of things I saw because I think SmackDown was preempted on at least my Fox station this past Friday because the DVR, neither DVR got it. And then I understand that it was going to be preempted this Friday and go to FS1 because of the World Series, but now they've had a rain delay. You would know more about this than I, Brian Mantle, Brian Gehrig. Oh, let's go with a Mets uh, name. You can use Seaver, but I'm Brian Last. I'll Brian my Seaver. original name, but... I don't know any Mets names. How about that? Well, you know Tom except, Seaver. Except for Milton Mets. He was a host of the Morning News here in Louisville for many years. Milton Mets, great guy. Have you heard of Daryl Strawberry? Uh, no, but I've I've heard of his cousin, Strawberry Cheesecake. All right, you've heard of Daryl Strawberry. But anyway, right. what I was going to say is Game 3 of the World Series was supposed to be last night as we were recording. Monday night, it was rained out. It's going to be today. It was it was a rain? Do they it was rain a rained those? out. I don't know why they I'm talking are, like the Italian restaurant. It was a rained out. It was, it was a rained out. But it will be a taking a place uh, tonight, and then every other game got pushed back. So that changes the schedule. It probably helped so anyway, Raw with the ratings. I saw the clips of, of certain highlights of the program because of this troublesome changing of schedule in various places. And obviously what everybody was talking about, this the, the bloodline interview where 
Reigns and Heyman and the Usos and Solo and Sammy came out and Roman Reigns in no uncertain terms told Jay Uso and Sammy Zayn to get their shit together, bury the hatchet, settle their differences, whatever the case may be. Everybody needs to be pulling the same rope here in the bloodline. And Sammy Zayn is brilliant. He's so... It's not just that if somebody had written this for him, it wouldn't have been the same. He delivers it so well because he's taking the story. He's taking the content that they're giving him, the point of the thing, but he's he's turning it into his own weaselish delivery. And he's such a convincing, toadying, stoogy, flunky type of disingenuous, I mean, all the all the adjectives and nouns and verbs and adverbs you can come up with. He's great. And you can tell he's a weasel, but he's such an entertaining weasel that the people, he's becoming the biggest baby face in the business. So he apologizes to Jay. He likes him. Why don't you like me? I'm sorry for whatever I've done. The fans are cheering his apology. He tries to shake Jay's hand. And Jay doesn't want to, and he basically said, get that hand out of my face. And then Jay finally tells Sammy off. I don't like nothing about you. How are you part of the bloodline when you ain't blood? You're blah, blah, blah. You're just a fake ass ooze. And then Sammy said, but the tribal chief wants peace. And he's worked Jay up so bad that Jay says, I don't give a damn what the tribal chief says. And you, they had the perfect camera shot, which obviously, because they're brilliant at production, you see Roman's face react and the place blows at the same time because they know what the fuck he's just done. And they start chanting, you fucked up, you fucked up. I would have to think the Fox Network at some point may say something to him because last time I checked, they were technically in violation of Federal Communications Commission requirements there, and if anybody wanted to press it, they would be subject to a heavy fine for broadcasting the word fuck over and over on network television. But nevertheless, the people went crazy, and Sammy then, as Roman gets in Jay's face, Sammy tries to calm Roman down, and that's when he hit the line, you know, Jay's been going through a lot. He just, he hadn't been feeling very Usi. And now you see he's cracked Reigns and Jay. All in one and shot. Everyone's in the same frame. Everybody's in the same frame. And now Jay, who's already, because Roman's having fun with this, and Jay was already a little bit when Sammy was talking before, but now he's not feeling very Usi, and the people laughed. And it's I've been in that position when the people in the building laugh at the, and it's contagious and you got your friends there and you, and you get the giggles. We get the giggles every once in a while here on the program. Not today. We haven't, but, and both Roman and Jay were trying. So, and Jay's covering his mouth up. Like he's looking down, you know, like doing that. Like he's, you know, fighting with his inner demons. And then finally at one point, Roman puts his arm around him and said, now look, if you can't find your inner Usi again, <laughs> and he tries, Jay tries to turn away from the camera. And he puts his hand over his face and Roman said, no, no, come, come on back here. Come on back here. 
when he's doing that, Roman sounds like The Rock, talking personally, talking and just talking to him. He has that, it not even the same kind of tone in his voice, but the same kind of inflection or delivery or whatever, what I'm trying to say. But anyway, Roman says, if you can't find your inner Usi again, we're going to make Sami Zayn a full-blown Uso. And then Sammy Uso and the people start chanting and fucking Jay is dying. And it just what a segment these guys, they've, you can tell they've all worked on this together because it's not just the writers giving them shit. They're, they're all in on it. They're working together with it. They're coming up with some good shit and people want to know what's going to happen next. And sooner or later, Sammy Zane will be a huge baby face and potentially even in a main event against Roman Reigns at in, in some shape or form. But that was a heck of a segment. And why don't you give your thoughts while the pressure washers are now on the actual back, the other side of the wall behind my computer here now, in case you hear any oh, I do. fire hoses or <laughs> machinery. I certainly hear it. It certainly sounds like it. I thought it was a tremendous segment. People ate it up. I know it did great for them on YouTube. I know people who are watching the show are all talking about it. Everyone loves when people get broken up. But it kind of worked with these people. I'm intrigued where they're going because I don't know where they're going. I can't, I haven't really spent too much time trying to figure it out, but Sammy, Jay Uso, the other Uso is not really doing much. Hey, listen, this is also good. They made you forget about Heyman. Heyman's been there for all this. Yes, he was standing and, and Heyman was uh, also appearing in this because they didn't need him. And that's that's fantastic that you've got so much promo going on in a group, you don't need Heyman. That's incredible. And I agree with you about Sami Zayn. I wouldn't say he's my favorite guy there, but he's in the conversation right now. I didn't say he was my favorite wrestler. I said I think he's my favorite guy to watch favorite on TV. Favorite guy to watch, yeah. He's certainly in the conversation. His stuff's been delivering. <laughs> well, that was a great opening to SmackDown, Jim. And before you get too verklempt or anything, let's talk about the rest of what Are you, you, you going to tell the people we had to take about a 15-minute break because the pressure washers were just beating us to death and then... We got them down to the other end of the house, but now the duct cleaners from Coit for my renovated room have come. And it sounds like, you know, for another thing we did for Halloween, Stace and I and Harley, we watched the Willard and Ben double feature over on the cock because they got movies, too, as well as the wrestling. And uh, it sounds when they're cleaning the ducks down in the room downstairs, it sounds like there's 10,000 rats scurrying through the the ceiling and the walls of that room. So if you hear that, that's why I don't have rats. Not anymore. I'm retired from that, but now I've just got duck cleaners. What's Willard and Ben? Is that like a claymation thing? Are you fucking, are, no, oh God, hold on, wait a minute. Seriously, what the fuck? We got to put the pause button on because now there is millions and millions of Cult of Cornet members and listeners around the world scoffing at you brian last the movies willard and ben oh right again i thought you said there were going to be a new series of shows that you were watching on peacock which surprised me no i said they had the double feature of willard and ben oh, for halloween on the cock you do know okay i do now, know ben because it influenced michael jackson to write his one love song which was about a rat no okay see you don't know anything you have no knowledge of anything 
It's not that he wrote that song because he loved a rat. Ben was the sequel to Willard. Willard was the troubled youth, Ute, the troubled Ute in the movie that befriended a white rat. And then the white rat found a friend that was a darker, like a brown or black rat name, and he named it Ben. And then when the white Socrates, the kindly, loving white rat, when it was killed by the evil owner of the company that had stolen the company from Willard's father, played by Ernie Borgnine, I'll have you know, killed Socrates and Ben went on the warpath and so did Willard and they got even, they killed a bunch of people and then they ended up turning on Willard. But Ben escaped the wrath of the authorities and came back for Ben, where he found another young troubled Ute, even younger. He was a younger Ute, and he had a bad heart, and he was he was forced to stay in the house, and he had no friends. But he had musical talent. He was a talented young kid. Too bad he didn't have Twitter. Too bad he didn't have Twitter. He could have he could have connected with the world instead of befriending Ben. Ben, the two of us need to look no more. We've both found what we've been looking for. See? And that's when he wrote the song in the movie because he was tinkling on his piano, the young man. Ben, the two of us need look no more. For the record. We both found what we were yeah, I'm looking sure. for. I'm sure this explains a lot, but to have I thought you were like saying it was a show ben. called Willard and Ben that everyone no. knew. And I was like, I've never heard no. of this show. And no. by the way, the show I was thinking of was Wallace and Gromit. The <laughs> claim. Well, see, that's happened. close to Willard and Ben. You've got <laughs> Wallace and you got Gromit. But nevertheless, the kid wrote the song in the movie and then and then Michael Jackson released it. His ode, his pan love song to a uh, to a rat. And it was a. a touching thing until years later when you realize what a freak he was and then it may have started with this rat love well you know hey there's the north american rat love association <laughs> would was based out of memphis you, i believe it was based in, <laughs> but nevertheless your rats are they're 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 kind and clean little animals remember i've had some pet rats not the wild ones you find out there you don't know where they've been but the the pet store rats if you've got an a enclosed area or a small city apartment or whatever you can't have a dog running around you a little rat they're they're very loving are dogs the perfect pet a dog is a perfect pet yes and, and uh, multiple to many dogs actually just have a bunch of dogs just don't have people what do you think of cats you know, cats are cute and cats are furry, but cats are also a little prickish, and I'm somewhat allergic. What about hamsters? Well, hamsters are just, they're inoffensive little creatures. They just like to sit there and piss and shit and chew on their seed all day. Turtles and frogs. Now you're, what the fuck is this? Now, are you, am I Marlon Perkins? <laughs> While Brian stays in the truck, I'll go and search for the saber-toothed porpoise. That wasn't on my list. I'm not good. I've, I've played when I was a child with frogs and, and tortoises and turtles and things, but I'm not going to have them as pets and name them and, you know, 
And I don't like spiders and snakes. And that ain't what it takes to love me like I want to be loved by you. What about fish? A fresh fish tank. A fresh fish for me to pull them out of and them to be fried for me. I've never, I've, yeah, I've, you know, a fish tank is nice to look at, but that's a lot of maintenance. And I'll be a son of a bitch. You can't teach those fish to do a thing. Not a thing. A trick. Roll over. I taught a bunch of fish when I was a kid to play dead. That's the only thing I ever learned from me. Were we talking about the wrestling? Speaking of playing dead, we were talking about SmackDown. Oh, yeah. Well, what else was on there? I'll tell you what a Bray Wyatt. Okay. All right, let me get it over with now. You were right. You were right. You were correct. He's going to work with himself, isn't he? He is going to have a program, a feud, an angle, a rivalry. A, a, a Mishigash, a mashup, a Hey Rube. He's going to have a Donnybrook, a Stemwinder, a Pier 6 Brawl. He's going to have it with himself, isn't he? Well, if anyone's going to do it, why not them? So Bray Wyatt comes out and gets in the ring. And again, like I praised him and I've been trying to praise him. The laugh, the tone, the voice, the delivery. This guy could be one of the most believable wrestlers in the business. He could talk you into something. And, and, and part of it is just waiting forever to hear, try to understand what point he's making. But you can take the ride with him because it's a colorful way of speaking. And he comes out and he says, there's. This is me, the real me, no mask, no smoke and mirrors, just me and you. It's the real man, Bray Wyatt. And I'm the best version of him. I'm going to do spectacular things while I'm here. Because, you know, I've often, in my life, I've often been out of control and I go to a dark place. I'm waiting for him to say something. Not to say he's saying plenty. I'm waiting to understand what, what he's saying or what point that he's eventually going to make. And he never actually gets there, but I love listening to it because you think it's building to something. You see, you, you understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of anticipation here. If he'd ever come out and said, say it, man, just say it. But it's a great delivery. And he could be one of the most believable people, in the, like Blackjack Mulligan was as a promo when, and let's face it, I mean, he was so big, and for a massive man like that, his work was was good, but he wasn't like Ricky Steamboat, right? But he could talk. He could talk you in. He could. He built his cast of characters in Eagle Pass, Texas, and, you know, he, he drew the people into what he was saying. Well, this guy could do the same thing, but... It apparently, it appears that he doesn't want to be the most believable guy. He wants to be the most unbelievable, the most spookiest. Uh, take the Undertaker and Kane and wrap them up times 10 with Papa Shango as a fucking chaser. And as he's doing this promo and he's saying he's done horrible things, a part of him is not afraid to do that. 
but there'll come another time when someone will ask me to do something horrible. I'm like, what the fuck? And then the video pops up. And it's a guy, someone in a spooky mask with quick cuts and darkness and effects, video effects all over it, doing a promo about mask wearing and the mask you're wearing. And I don't know what the fuck is going on now. I can't understand half of it. But it's spooky. And finally, he reveals himself as Uncle Howdy. And it looks like, as I think a number of people have pointed out, a a mask. If Barry Windham was a zombie, this is what the mask that Uncle Howdy wears would look. And it just so happens that fucking Barry Windham is his uncle. Does that make him Boy Howdy? It maybe makes him Boy Howdy. All these, all these. Yeah, you know what? That's what ha- I said, Boy Howdy, so many times. I finally conjured up Bray Wyatt. Uh, but it, so I'm not saying that I'm trying to pitch the idea that Barry Windham is coming in to work with Bray Wyatt. I'm saying it's his fam. It's another personality somehow of himself and is with his convoluted family, dark thoughts in his brain that makes him do horrible things or whatever. But goddamn, I don't know what to think about all this, but I actually think. And that's been people have been tweeting us and people have been emailing me and they've been saying, you're going to have to say Brian was right. He's about to work a program with himself. And I think you're right. I think he's about to work a program with himself. I mean, the the promo in the ring versus the guy on the screen might work, but when, when they actually have to have a match, how are they going to figure that out? Unless Uncle Howdy... You said it looked like Barry Windham, a zombie Barry Windham. It looked like someone cut the skin off Barry Windham's face. Hey! <laughs> and just like put it on like a creepy mask. And somehow he also has a production team, this creepy man. And he submitted this to a drill or whatever he submitted to the studio. I'm not surprised. This is what I thought. I mean, this may be one of those guys where Vince wasn't the problem. <laughs> He got blamed for more than he was actually guilty of. Uh, the promos in the fucking dark in the ring, just so people can fucking turn their phones on to pretend that they're lighters. Because if you fucking took a lighter out, they'd probably tackle you now in a fucking building. <laughs> well, wait a minute. There's no, there's no smoking in the arenas, but there can't be any lighting? I don't think so. I think you're prohibited from igniting any sort of fuse in a lot of these buildings. <laughs> I don't know. Every time I went to a big show in the WWF, my fucking fuse got ignited as soon as I got in the building. So the other options are that Uncle Howdy, who has somehow been referenced by Bray Wyatt right away and is involved in this mystical feud, it could be Bray Wyatt's brother. We heard that Bo Dallas or Bo Rotunda, whatever his name is, may be coming back. We heard that there are other people they want involved in this potential Wyatt faction that people are talking about we don't know so it may not be him versus himself although if anyone could do it like i said well (laughs) now here's the thing are they gonna bring bo bo knows who knows bo are they gonna bring him in but bray is going to claim that this person wearing this 
Captain Howdy, man. I'm sorry. I'm going back to uh, William Peter Blatty now. The the boy or the boy Uncle Howdy. The mask is really him, and then we don't know that it's supposed to be Bo. Bo Rotunda, Bo Dallas. You know what? Bo, oh my God! The worst, one of the worst days in wrestling history. No one really knew about it until recently. It was whenever Mike Rotunda took his kids to see the ring in theaters. <laughs> Because that's all this is. That's the other thing. People are like, oh, it's so amazing. It's so creative. No, it looks like this guy saw the ring many years ago starring Naomi Watts, or perhaps the Japanese version of the film, and it's just doing that on WWE TV for no reason. This is terrible. I told you. He says nothing. You're like, he's so oh, convincing. He is convincing because he's like, and I told everyone I was in the bed. You're like, oh, wow. What's he? He's really convinced of what he's saying and then you're like he's not really saying anything and then he gets interrupted by uncle howdy yeah see you slipped in there i told you because you're a motherfucker it's been waiting to say i told you so you were giving this guy credit for no like maybe he'll come back and you know work a match in the <laughs> well, light I mean, you know work, there work is... a match in the light have we seen this guy in the light in years? <laughs> don't walk into the light <laughs> he's he's got promo talent He's he's got he's got that that could be channeled into something good for humanity. He has promo talent. Could he do? You have ninety seconds. You're gonna wrestle this guy on the premium live event. Just say what you're gonna do to him. Yeah, that may be a problem. Now that I'm looking at it, it's like Thunderbolt Patterson. He never says anything. <laughs> you believe him, if but he says move. nothing. If you move. If I only had time. Well, Bray Wyatt's been getting a lot of time and apparently selling a lot of merch. I'm sure these creepy Uncle Howdy masks will fly off the shelves. Was that all that you saw in SmackDown? Well, what do you think about the, you know, the big merch seller now? The big merch juggernaut in the WWE is going to have to be... Sami Zayn. No. Oh. The top dollar Halloween costume. I mean, I know Halloween's over with. But we gotta we gotta dress like top dollar all year round. This guy, did you see the <laughs> six man tag between the Lucha suits and Shaky Nakamura and Skid Row? I did watch this match because I saw a clip on Twitter, and <laughs> it intrigued me enough that I said, you know, I gotta watch this match. This team is so bad, <laughs> and they keep getting television time. And in return, nobody reacts to anything they fucking do. And they keep getting more television time. This is this is <laughs> Triple H's mistake bring back. He was trying to bring back all the talent they lost. Well, he brought them back, but they're not talent and nothing was lost here. And then what was lost was Swerve Strickland, apparently. Um, I again I saw the I didn't wasn't treated to the entire thing, but I saw the clip that they released on their own recognizance on their own website and god they're doing a four-way at the start b fab is just standing in the ring the manageress wandering around and then they highlighted top top dollar acts like he is a combination of jimmy superfly snooka the rock and fucking i don't know goddamn gorgeous george while he looks like a fat basketball dad on the playground swearing that he can dunk and failing every time but then watch this watch this he 
he grabs the guy's hand. He points to the turnbuckle like, oh, the people are going to see me go to the turnbuckle. <laughs> and, then he, and then he wallers his fat ass up on top and stands there while the guy's helping him balance. And then he jumps off and gives him a baba chop to the fucking head. Oh, my God. <laughs> and this, this is a nearly 40-year-old man. Did we not? We established that, that he's closing in on 40 and he's dressing like he's 16 on the on the playground in the hood. Oh, that was the problem with the chop that got no reaction from anyone? Well, no. I, I mean, the, the dress, the work, the lumbar. He'll point to the ropes like, I'm going to go hit the ropes and do something cool. And then he'll lumber into the ropes like somebody arm-whipped a goddamn chest of drawers into the fucking ropes and then and a shiffer robe comes back and then there's the davenport i don't know what top dollar <laughs> you know have we ever figured out why he was the one they picked to host the show where they hunt down the wrestling memorabilia no but he was he was okay at that he had no product knowledge really and we were like who the fuck is this guy and where'd he come from that he's running this show but he sounded like he could fucking negotiate somebody down on one of their prized possessions, but he can't fucking wrestle. I don't know. And would somebody please tell B-Fab to not be scared? She looks like she's just surrounded by clouds of uncertainty as to what she's supposed to be doing out there. She looks like a deer on ice. What should she uh. be doing out there? She's in the corner. She's not wrestling. Sitting in the third row, eating some popcorn. Next to Top Dollar. No, she's got a good look. She's... <laughs> now you sound like Vince. She's got a good Looks look. Good. You can't compare her to Top Dollar. Looks good, pal. But the same thing, in, 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 if she looks good, but the problem is she can't move or breathe or talk or looks awkward in every way at applying herself to this maybe looks good isn't the standard for being on national television doing something i'm an incredibly good looking man but i don't know that i should be given a job trying to let's say re repair the mainframe of the world wide web i'm probably not equipped or educated for it but I'm good looking. I don't know what to say about any of what you just said. But Hit Row continues to be a fun watch on SmackDown. Speaking of Friday night, yeah. did, you, did you hear about the Rampage on the other channel? I did hear about it. I heard, uh, yes. I heard so from some people who were there. Uh, the Wrestling News' Brian Solomon, I believe, was there. And I read some reviews on different message boards and different groups from people. I've seen a lot about this show, yeah. Yeah, well, the they finally got a rating they deserve because this had to be one of the worst live television wrestling programs I've ever seen in my life, and they've got to do something, certainly. Certainly. Because they're down to, what, 375,000? The ratings of Rampage on TBS are lower than our podcast. For fuck's sake. And did you see any of it? I just really, real briefly, I want to tell you what they foisted off on the population. And this has got to be a topic of conversation at this point. 
in AEW, they've got an hour of national cable television on a Friday night, and they're doing absolutely nothing with it. And now I understand they're trying to run live rampages where they all they tape in front of these people, and they did this in at the Mohegan Sun Casino. All they taped was their YouTube shit and then this program. And ex- not only expected people that paid to sit through it all, but to be happy about it. And they've got to, you know, even if they want to run these people off of at the live event, how this was a a time slot that was given them by Warner Media or whoever was in charge at that point because they changed from TNT to TBS. And so this was a gift time slot and they're programming it like they don't want people to watch. Literally, they could put an infomercial on or a rerun of a program they already pay for and do better numbers than this. So, anyway, do you know what a world title eliminator match is, Brian? I'm not going to make any jokes or anything. I was wondering this after Dynamite, they announced a world title eliminator match coming up for Moxley. It's... Is it? But I was confused. Is it Moxley against people that he eliminates, or is it people who have to eliminate each other to get the Moxley? No, it's a non-title match, and if they they win, they they, they beat Moxley, they get a title match. <laughs> so it's a non-title match. But what's the eliminator part? Well, if they don't win, they don't get a title match. But he's wrestling a guy that would have never got a fucking title match anyway. Moxley versus Daddy Mac Mac Daddy. That's overly complicated. And five seconds after the start of the match, they were on the floor and Moxley was throwing fake punches. And they were out there about two minutes at least. So anyway, Moxley won that. And then here comes Stokely with Lee Moriarty, who still has green hair. And I've never seen this before. I want to paint this picture for you. Moxley standing in the ring. Stokely and Moriarty come down the fucking ramp, right? Stokely starts cutting a promo on how good Moriarty is. And then said, but never, I'll let him tell you. And the guy's standing right there, right? And they go to the big screen where it's a fucking video of the guy that's standing there next to Stokely cutting a promo on Moxley. (laughs) Did you understand what I just said? Not exactly. So he was in the ring with Lee Moriarty and then... No, no. Moriarty and Stokely are in the entranceway. Moxley's in the ring. Okay. Stokely cuts a promo on Moxley. Right. And then and then Stokely hands it over to Moriarty and they pitch to a video so that Moriarty is standing there in the entranceway, but there's a video of him on the screen cutting a promo on Moxley. The fuck is that? I don't know. So then the next match was Keith Lee against Serpentico. And there was a charitably a 225-pound weight difference. And Serpentico looked like a kid in a generic wrestling lucha costume. And the match was a powerbomb, one, two, three. I mean, it was the right result, but my God, why would you book that? In general. What do you think of the idea of having so many guys who are 
pretty defined in the tag team division, whether it's Dax Harwood or whether it's Keith Lee here, based on recent activity, having them have so many singles matches. Should they just be in tag matches? Yes, for until they get over as a team, yes. And, in, and I know some people, oh, so FTR on, aren't over? No, they are over because the fans decided they were good, but the booking in AEW has never gotten them over or put them over. They they had the same thing as everybody else. Keith Lee gets singles matches because he's a big guy, so he can beat a little tiny guy in 10 seconds. Dax Harwood is potentially the best in-ring worker of any type or sex or occupation or whatever in the company, so he gets long singles matches where he puts everybody over because he makes everybody else look better. So neither one is smart, but it does more for the team for one of them to bash a fucking guy in 10 seconds than it does for the other guy to be losing to everybody. But no, until... Until you actually get somebody over with a series of wins or more wins than losses on television in the role you primary role you want them to be in, whether it be a single or a tag team or a healer, babyface or whatever, you don't go breaking tag teams up and having them do singles matches, much less lose singles matches before they've established any kind of credibility as a team. And I just, it doesn't make any sense. When's the last time we saw Lee and Swerve in the same place? I think once out of the last three or four weeks, much less wrestling together. Right. So if anyway. You, if you have Serpentico there, why not tag him up with another one of the job guys and have them lose to those two in 30 seconds? Just because give him a win. it might make sense. And uh, anyway, and then there's the whole issue of burking, booking Serpentico or burking Serpentico. Didn't we read he's an agent now? No, I think that was another co, Angelico. No, or... it was him. It was the one who used to tag with Luther because oh, Luther's God. an agent. Okay, well, the point is another joke friend wrestler wannabe got a job. So then afterwards, Tony Schiavone's going to do an interview with Keith Lee. And, of course, Keith Lee does not get a chance to say a word before the acclaimed music interrupts and the people pop and they cheer. And as soon as Caster comes out, he says, you ain't going to get a rap tonight. And the crowd starts booing. And the acclaimed have to tell this story in public. These two kids who are getting, have gotten over tremendously with the audience and the whole thing with Billy Gunn and Scissor Me Daddy Ass, the whole nine yards. Again, they're not the, the second coming of Steamboat and Youngblood in the ring, but they're green and they'll learn and they're over. So the first thing you need to do is put them in stupid shit that nobody believes and everybody laughs at and diminish all of their popularity because the fans are going, well, now they're just fucking morons too. They have to tell the story that Billy Gunn is missing, and they don't know where he is. And Tony Schiavone says that, well, we heard that Billy had a family emergency. Well, it seems like his adopted sons would know that before Tony Schiavone, who... He needs to get a haircut and drop the earring or go ahead and admit that he's a 65-year-old fucking hippie who used to live in a tent in the Haight-Ashbury district. But anyway, 
As soon as Tony says that, Swerve pops up on the screen. Because we were wondering where old Swerve was. Well, he is in a dark room with Billy Gunn kidnapped, tied up, taken away, and held for ransom. He's tied to a chair. And, and now, again, Billy Gunn, more popular than he's been in 20 years, maybe ever. And they're going to do this to him and get people laughing at him instead of with him and getting people rolling their eyes this whole thing on a show that the only saving grace now is nobody's watching it. Maybe the folks on Wednesday night won't have heard about this. So then Billy and Swerve start talking to each other, even though Billy's tied up with his hands behind him, tied to the chair. He's like, well, you ain't going to get away with this. Oh, yes, I am. And st stuff like that. And then finally, Swerve shows Billy a pair of pliers, walks behind him, and reaches down. And at first, I thought he was going to go for the nuts. But instead, he went for, obviously, one of the fingers. But you can't see. But Billy starts screaming. So now they're expecting the people to believe that Swerve is cutting off one of Billy Gunn's fingers with a pair of pliers and Billy's going along with it and he's being obviously fake and selling for this guy in this bad skit and this is the way that you kill talent off that the fans have decided they like for themselves by making them so stupid and nonsensical that you can't like them anymore. And of course, then the acclaimed jump out of the ring at that point and run to the back. Where are they going? <laughs> where, yeah. Apparently they don't know where the fuck Billy is because that's what they said five minutes ago. And then Keith Lee's standing there in the ring and he makes the conflicted face like, am I with my partner taking this guy's fingers off with a pair of pliers or am I not? This was some hot fucking garbage. I didn't see this, but I'm listening to you and I've heard some other people talk about it. I didn't realize all the details, to be honest. The acclaimed are going to have a rare distinction of being an AEW act that AEW perfectly captured the momentum briefly, and AEW, just like everyone else, they're starting to blow the momentum. Well, and that's what they're not going to be different than anything else. Wardlow had momentum, FTR had momentum. Hobbs and Starks, one or the other at one time or another, had a little momentum. And there you go. And did it, did the Acclaim say anything good about CM Punk? Because that's what everybody else had in common, was they praised Punk. And they got their nuts cut off. Well, I get, well the Acclaim probably weren't praising Punk, or elsewise he would have cut Billy's nuts off instead of his finger. So then on this program, Madison Rain worked with Ty Meloconti and boy howdy I can't I if I sat down and went through it it was a wrestling school girls practice match with no leader though between the stop and start herky jerky weak throws strikes uncertainty blah 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 misapprehension Good Lord, this didn't do anybody any favors, including the company and the viewers that they aired this. But it was live, so they couldn't fix it for once. If the answer's not allowed to be 
fire them. How do you teach a smaller woman to run the ropes? Because it, well, <laughs> because if they're under the rope, obviously everything's a little different than it would be with a guy. But it seems like that's a lot of the problem with a lot of the women. I'm not even speaking about anyone specifically in this match, but just the running of the ropes, the things that for years seemed like the simplest of tasks for wrestlers. It's those things that usually seem like they're the hardest. Your question was, how do you teach it? And the answer is, sometimes you can't. If someone is so small and tiny and has not enough body weight and can't propel themselves, I mean, again, cheerleading or gymnastics or, you know, whatever the small girls, Olga Corbett was 90 pounds. She got a perfect 10 and the fucking uneven parallel bars or whatever. That's goddamn art. That's a talent, that's a sport, that's an art, whatever. But it doesn't translate to professional wrestling. And I joked about, Riho, her name is Riho, and she don't weigh 90 pounds. And when she hits the mat, well, it barely makes a sound. Because it don't. Because they're just, they're, it's ridiculous. And... Sometimes, you know, Shawn Michaels used to tell the guys when he was working out with guys in the ring, and especially in that ring up there where they've always used the real ropes instead of cables, he would say, attack the mat on your bumps. Don't just fall, attack the mat. And if you're going to hit the ropes, hit the fucking ropes. Attack the ropes. And that's how they'd get... If you watch Michaels and... Hart or anybody that was really smooth and in that time period hitting the ropes, they would charge into those things and they had the fluid turn and those ropes would stretch out much farther than cables do and they would get spring coming off of them. And it, in, even in the 20 foot ring, three steps and you're across the ring and turn, three steps and turn, three steps and turn. It was a thing of beauty. And it's like these fucking kids are just tiptoeing up to the things and turning like they're going to hit a concrete wall. So I, I, the answer is to how do you teach anything in wrestling is you can teach it whether they can do it or not is up in the air. Because it's not like you're seeing any women's wrestlers of, I shouldn't say any, but most of the women who get on AEW the last few years who are brand new an Anna Jay or a Ty Mello or a Jade to an extent, but a lot of them, it's just a lot of running. Like, it's not like collar and elbow, work a move. I mean, I'm not saying they should work exactly like Harley Race in 1980 for anyone who right. thinks. But just running back and forth. Just and now running, that, turning on your person. Weird. Well, here's another couple things that the kids these days have picked up on is not only will they do the lucha thing where a guy will just take off running right past his opponent and the opponent will kind of do the motion with his hand on past like I'm forcing you past me and it's like a god they're going into a tumbling routine which they then do but that's a lucha thing that they've been doing in Mexico for years but if you had pulled that in this country until recently as you ran by your opponent two or three feet away without even acknowledging him, he would have just knocked the fuck out of you. And there, then there's the other thing. I started calling guys on this in Ring of Honor about 10 or 12 years ago, and now it's a, a lot worse. You'll be faced off with a guy, standing there squared off, looking at him, whatever, 
and suddenly they will turn their one guy will turn his back to the guy and look at the ropes behind him and then take off and run. But meanwhile, he's literally turned his back uh, 180 degrees on a guy that's standing two feet behind him. And I'm mean, what the fuck are you doing? The only time I've ever seen that make any sense was when the guy turned before he took off running. The guy that he turned his back on grabbed a handful of his hair and just jerked him right backwards off his feet onto the fucking mat. That's what would you would do or just rabbit punch the guy in the base of his skull. But it's insane. And so uh, I don't, that's why there's all the hooping and hollering and they ought to be playing the saber dance. But it's like when we saw Serena Deeb pop up. And look, Serena Deeb, there are some issues with charisma and character that would prevent her from getting to a top level, quite frankly, I think. But in terms of in-ring ability? As, as a technician. As a technician, she's fantastic. She stands out, I think, partly because no one else... There's so many other women just she running. Stands, she stands out because she's the only one of those girls that was ever trained by Rip Rogers. That's why she actually knows how to wrestle. That's the end of that. Well, that was uh, the end of that. We'll talk, I'm sure. Well, no, that. but that wasn't the end of the show. Oh. There's more to the show because you're not going to believe this, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. They've actually signed new talent in AEW that we actually want to see. And they have already set about beating them, so we don't want to see them anymore. The main event was Wardlow against Matt Taven. Matt Taven and Mike Bennett and Maria, we thought they popped up a week ago or whatever. They've been signed apparently for AEW, not even just Ring of Honor. Yeah, I did see that. So let's give okay. him a chance. So he well, that's what I thought, and he's going to bring them on TV and beat all of them. First time we see him, like he does with everybody, the fucking lunatic that Tony is. The main event was that they did some kind of angle either on fucking YouTube or Dark or last week on Rampage or whatever. But again, this guy's only... Matt Taven is very, very good. And I think very talented and in this field could be used along with Mike Bennett. As a top-level fucking guy, they can both work circles around some of these self-trained fucking imbeciles, but they can hang with the legitimate pros there are on the roster in AEW, what there are of them. They're both very good. So, they've been here a week, so he brings Taven in and beats him. Not only does he beat him, but also to make sure that Wardlow doesn't get over anymore, they have a really competitive match. And then Wardlow beats him. So now that's done no, neither guy any good. Because Taven is a nobody who's had no wins in this environment. and But he comes in and goes 15 minutes with Wardlow before Wardlow beats him flat with four power bombs and a foot on his fucking chest. So Taven's now useless as a talent to the company. This is... We've been... Now indoctrinated that Matt Taven's a guy that comes in and gets the shit kicked out of him and fucking beat flat in the middle. But then, like the heels always do in this company, Bennett attacks him from behind and they start trying to get some heat on Wardlow. So here comes Samoa Joe, Wardlow's weird 
tag team partner for no reason. He does the run-in to save his partner carrying whatever championship belt he holds here. I can't remember. And then he beats up both of the heels. Ring of Honor TV champion, I believe. Okay, well, he beats up both Bennett and Taven and shit cans them both out of the fucking ring. So, actually, Bennett and Taven in a tag team program with FTR would probably be the best tag team matches we could get in today's environment without employing Mark and Jay Briscoe. But they just got brought in to do a job and then get the shit kicked out of them and shit canned out of the ring. But nevertheless, he shit cans those good heels. Here comes Powerhouse Hobbs, music and entrance. Okay. What the fuck? What does he have to do with anything here? But as he's coming down the, the ramp, a million other heels jump in the goddamn ring from behind. It's the Ring of Honor heel crew with the Gates of Agony, the Fat Samoans, and whoever the fuck else is involved. And I get now Hobbs is going to be stuck in that. And the DVR froze because they were about 30 seconds from going off the air, but there's 18 people in the ring and we still don't really know who all of them are. And thanks for coming, Bennett and Taven. And Maria didn't get to do shit except jumped up on the apron one time. Glory, hallelujah. What is he doing? If you don't have room to use these guys now, then don't bring them in and just ruin their careers. Just destroy them on national television. Wait six months until some more of these goddamn self-trained, entitled, nepotism fucking victims that got their jobs because who their friends are self-destruct you get in a fight you got to get rid of them and then bring the good talent in and use them i swear to god right now if if he had the opportunity to sign john cena tony khan i'm talking about and he already had wednesday night's tv written he would sign john cena and put him in a fucking dark match on youtube because he just didn't have room I don't think that's fair. I think he would debut John Cena at a great affair on a Wednesday live. It'll be a big rating. And then I think the second week, John Cena would come out and get a big pop and not really do much. And by the third week, he would just be fitting in with the rest of them up there. <laughs> you know, I've said it to you that Ring of Honor is being jammed on everyone's throat. A lot of it is he's building up this Ring of Honor pay-per-view, although, I mean, Jericho's the Ring of Honor champion. You got to figure he's going to be on the pay-per-view. He's all over the show. FTR are the tag champions. They're sometimes on the show. Samoa Joe's the champion. But still, there's other guys, I guess. Based on the way Tony books stuff, I hate the fact that I'm guessing they form this out-of-nowhere friendship relationship war Joe of Wardlow and Samoa Joe just so one of them could turn on the other and have matches. Because all of a sudden, they're buddies, and all of a sudden, they're involved in this? I don't know. I'm not at the booking award low. You almost have to start over. And Ring of Honor. I mean, what the fuck's Ring of Honor? They're building up a Ring of Honor pay-per-view. The only reason anyone's going to buy it is because you're talking about it on AEW TV. It's an AEW pay-per-view. Under the name Ring of Honor with some other wrestlers too. That was a master class in wrestling booking. Some would say. Not many. 
But there's one or two people I can think of who may say that. And they all live in Campbell-by-the-Sea. Was it a master work of wrestling? And that's an awful transition. They write such wonderful copy. But Masterworks, Jim, a wonderful opportunity for the listeners to make an investment that makes sense. Well, thankfully, you've managed to save that right at the last. Something that makes sense. We haven't been talking about that. We've been talking about AEW, but now we're going to talk about what makes sense for you. That's making money. Because making money makes a lot of sense because those dollars, well, they make a lot of sense. Anyway, now that I've made no sense, folks... The folks at Masterworks are sweetening the deal up just a little bit here on the program. If you sign up with our link, which I will tell you in just a minute, you're going to learn how you can get up to $200 in free shares. Free and $200, those things don't often go together, but today they do because we're going to make you some money. Now you say you want to buy some fine art. Tell you what I'm going to do. Right here. Right here under my raincoat, I have the most amazing Monet and Van Gogh well, that's that pro- you can ever that you can ever be a party to, and I'm going to sell it to you on the corner of the street, right here, right out from under my raincoat. Now that that's a situation that we've all found ourselves in from time to time, where you're standing on a corner waiting for the light to change, and somebody comes up and tries to sell you a Renaissance painting from one of the great masters right out from under their raincoat. When's the last time that happened? You up in New York, what, a couple times a week? Well, not exactly, but that kind of happened to me on Park Avenue and 55th, like in 2005. See, that's what I'm telling you. It really did. Well, you can't trust a lot of these In front of the Chase Bank. In front of the Chase Bank. (laughs) See, well, folks, and I'll tell you, you can't trust a lot of these people because they wouldn't be working on the street corner if they were legitimate. Instead, they would be in in the middle of the parking lot working out of the trunk of their car like everybody else. But fine art is a great way to make money. You know, that stuff does. When did you hear about a guy losing all his money because his Rembrandt and his Van Gogh and his Monet and his Picasso? just all became worthless. You don't hear about that. And the folks at Masterworks realize that maybe you're not not up to buying the whole Van Gogh or the whole Rembrandt. You want just a share of it. Because that way, when we sell this thing to some multi-billionaire from another country, you're going to be able to cash in. And you can get up to $200 in free shares through that link that I was talking about that we're going to tell you. That way you can take an extra vacation, pay off a loan, pay an income to have have another child. Whatever you do that costs money. Those kids are expensive, right? Well, there's a tax deduction. Well, you got that going for you. But nevertheless, Masterworks has been delivering amazing results, even when the traditional investments have been suffering all this Worldwide chaos with the financial markets around the world. You don't have to worry about that. They had an exit at Masterworks. Now, that's what they call a sale when you get out of something, right? We got out of it. 21.5% net return. That means, according to the mathematics that they're showing me, if you'd put in $10,000, you'd get $12,000 out. Now, that's an extra $2,000. 
Just like that. See? See what? Well, you can get make $2,000. Like that? Are you snapping your clapping? Like what are you doing? I'm snapping. Six out of the seven exits so far <laughs> gave investors more than 20% net returns because Masterworks has given you access to the same things that millionaires and billionaires invest in without you having to be a billionaire yourself or even a measly old millionaire. So when you sign up, with our special code to learn all of this secret information that is kept quiet from the public and is only imparted to those of us in the know. When you sign up with a special code, you're going to find out how to get up to $200 of free shares in Masterworks. Go to masterworks.art slash gym. Masterworks.art slash gym. Learn about the free shares. Learn about your chance to buy the Ward off the nose of the Mona Lisa, and you can also see important regulation A disclosures, whatever they may be, I've never read them, at masterworks.com slash CD. By the way, net returns refers to the annualized rate of return net of all fees and costs calculated from the closing date to the sale date. IRR may not be indicative of paintings not yet sold. Past performance is not indicative of future results. That's right, Jim. Masterworks and... Here we are. You know, it feels like we've been doing this for a day. And don't try. No, no, no. Don't try to get away with this, Brian Last. Don't try to swerve <laughs> these people around. No, you got to come out and be honest with this. In the, in the twinkling of an eye, we have skipped ahead about, what, 15 hours because the pressure washing here at the castle got more intense. And then we, when we decided to break for a second, and let that subside. I did. I got a call from downstairs uh, saying that apparently we had a leak in the new room. Uh, and we're going down there. We found out that it's a it's okay even if you have monsoon like rain. Uh, my roof is okay, but when the assistant pressure washer shoots a goddamn concerted stream of fucking water that would almost break a window straight up under the fucking soffit. It's got to come back down somewhere. So then we got that taken care of. But I'll have you know, Brian Last, that at that point, I was alerted to the fact that, well, when we shot the water over around the other side up under that other soffit, a bunch of wasps came out. Oh, no. And I go, right, oh, no. Oh, no. And I go around there, and there's a goddamn convention of these Southern Baptist wasps in the fucking soffit up there, and they're flying around, and we're spotting where they're going back in. And, of course, then Toby, who was the head pressure washer. I was going to say, it sounds like the head wasp. No, the head pressure washer, Toby, he informed me, the Izzy is his assistant's name, Toby and Izzy. He informed me that he's seen this kind of activity happen, and if you see 10 or 12 of them like we were looking at, there's probably a lot more inside. And he said, well, I pulled a soffit down one time, and I saw a wasp nest as big as a daggum car tire. So that made me think, well, I need to call the pest control people. So I call the pest control people, but now it's too late in the day for them to answer the phone, because apparently pest control people and bankers, they like to close up early. So I called first thing this morning. You know, I don't remember, actually, since we recorded the 
first part of this program yesterday now, and I've slept barely since then. I don't even remember what we fucking said yesterday. So this, I'm sure this will be a wonderful show, but I do remember that I told a story that I'd had some problems with other people when I'm saying, just tell me what it's going to cost and do it, and they won't. So I've got my ongoing pest control company, who shall remain nameless at this time. I may still need them. I call him up this morning, and I said, hi, it's Jim Cordette, wonderful longtime customer of yours. And I got a wasp nest up in my soffit of my house, and I've been apprised of this by the pressure washers yesterday, and I know where they are, and I want to get somebody to come out here and deal with this situation. You know what the woman said to me? She said, well, let me have one of our technicians call you to see whether we can do that or not. And I'm thinking to myself, whether you is there a question? You're a pest control company. I have pests that need to be controlled. You come out here and spray all over the place on a, a quarterly basis for everything else on the ground. The only difference is these are up in the air. But I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere there. I said, well, please tell the technician to call me when he gets the opportunity. That's what they call the people that come out and Spray dangerous chemicals all over your property, technicians. So now I'm waiting to find out whether the wasp nest can be successfully deactivated from the roofal area. Am I there? We're going to roofie the, the wasps. And the, the pressure washers are back today, but they're not pressure washing right now. They're caulking right now. They got a lot of caulk. They got some big caulk things over there. And they're shaking those around everywhere, but they had to come back today also for the pressure washing because they needed a bigger ladder. They said they need a 30-foot ladder to get up to the top of the gable in the top part of the house. And then there's people down there also running drills, if you happen to hear that too, Brian. I'm trying to cover everything that you might complain about in the course of the rest of the program. Now, where were we? Well, what I was going to say is, you know, I think you're my friend, and <laughs> I think we've established that the listeners, they're our friends, and friends don't hurt other friends. There's no reason to go on about Raw for a long time. I know you watched it. <laughs> you watched it on your own. There was no provocation for this incident. I thought you would... You would drag me through the mud and, and chasten me and <laughs> cudgel me. If I didn't try to keep up with some of the WWE stuff this week. Um, but yeah, I do have some brief thoughts about a couple of things. Would you like to hear them? I think we will hear them. <laughs> That's a full-throated... Of course, we want to hear... I mean, there were some well, interesting things. Yeah, of course things. we want to... Yeah, you want to hear this like you want to see... You're fucking dick in between two mousetraps. All right. Listen, I think the first hour or so, it felt like one show, and then it just turned into a different show. I don't, well, I don't know, because I didn't see the Bianca Belair against Nikki Cross, formerly Nikki Ass. I hear another bad gimmick rehab. At least they've let this poor girl take her superhero outfit off. 
But I don't, I, you know, I don't know whether or not uh, Nikki's going to be on my must-watch list. But they had that. And then a lot of people were talking about the Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley showdown here. And again, yes, they've, they're going for the chaos. And we like that. You know, there there needs to be more chaos in these things. Just these phony-ass backstage beatdowns and ridiculous, long, redundant heat angles where nobody tries to help. We're always blistering. Well, they don't have any security, whatever. So they're trying to button up a few of these loopholes. But I don't... I thought, and I've been chastened by this, by the fans on Twitter or wherever, when Brock Lesnar came out and just stood, it, it came to the ring and then just suckered Bobby Lashley and just beat the shit out of him. When Bobby Lashley has been a babyface for months now, okay, that's Brock. He's turning heel. Why else would you come out and just fucking Pearl Harbor a babyface beat shit out of him? But then people have said, well, Bobby Lashley, when he was a heel, did that to Brock Lesnar back in was it? January Royal Rumble time a long time ago. So that was just Brock getting him back. Okay, then in that case, shouldn't they be presenting Bobby as a heel? <laughs> but no, they're not doing that. Who are we supposed to cheer for here? And it's naturally going to go to Brock because he's got all the personality when it comes to talking. They put poor Bobby in a, he's supposed to have a sit-down interview with, with Brock where they air out their grievances for Festivus, but Bobby's sitting there, Brock's chair is empty, and Bobby, as we've mentioned, struggles having to talk at length, showing emotion and oomph and imparting passion into his words, right? And... Then Lesnar's music plays, and he comes out in the arena and calls Bobby out. So the people are going crazy for this. Yes, yeah, the guy's out here live in front of us. Instead of watching him on the screen, and the guy's challenging for a fight like all the fucking good people in Texas. So if Bobby's supposed to be a heel, then that's fine. But if Bobby's supposed to be a babyface, he, they are pissing in his mouth. Are they not, Brian? They, he, he's, we're burying him in some fashion. He's not a heel. He's not a baby. He's a, a weak, willed, baby face who gets you know fucking called out and beat up a lot. And I think a lot of it depends too on what happens with Brock. Is Brock here just for Crown Jewel? Is Brock here through Mania? Is Brock here through just the Rumble? Or is he just here for the Lashley thing? I did find it funny when Lashley's sitting there and Brock's in the ring yelling at him. And Lashley's still sitting there just watching. Did you notice the way Brock says his name? He goes, Bobby! Bobby! He pronounces it that way every time he says his name. Bobby! <laughs> but, so, but the psychology of this. So, Again, Brock comes out and says, hey, let's just have a fight. Let's not talk. So, yes, the people are all over that. And they're in Texas. He's put Texas over. Well, here comes Lashley. And then Corey Graves says, well, where's security? Well, 
why do we need security yet? Because it's obviously this is a validated thing because everybody's entrance music play. They played Brogs and now they're playing Lashley's. So, and even though they've called for a fight, nobody's been in a fight yet. So there shouldn't be any security, except if they're trying to prevent a fight, then why are they playing the guy's music for him to come to the ring? to fight? So then they have a fight. And here comes security and referees and all the preliminary guys. And they have a big pull apart. And there's Triple H directing traffic like Dana White. And that part's exciting. And it's great to have a bunch of those bodies. But then, as as we will see later on in the program, they've now established that not only do they have a fleet of security there, but that other guys will come out to separate a fight or a conflict or unauthorized activity. And then in an hour and a half, apparently they couldn't pay the overtime on the security and nobody, nobody comes out to help attempted beheading. So I like the fight between Brock and Bobby. I'm confused as fuck about everything else. I like the fight is the idea that all these guys that ran out there to break them up, that were ready to break them up, they said, don't let them fight. Don't let them fight. All right, hit his music, but don't let them fight. Why did yeah. they hit the music? <laughs> they hit the music like 20 seconds. Nah, that was too long, but maybe 10 seconds before he came out. And then he comes out. The music was unnecessary because you wouldn't have had a better reaction from the fans. The worst thing about this, though, go back and watch it. The camera cuts. It's every second. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's nonstop. They have a really impressive shot, the wide shot. Because then you get to see all the humanity out there trying to separate these giant men. But instead of that, they go from that to the shot behind people, so you can't see anything, just to show chaos, to a shot on the other side, to the other side again, back and forth. So unnecessary. The one wide shot was the most impressive one, and they just kept flicking the camera around to ruin everything. Well, the reason why I watched Raw was because I heard about one match on it, and I said, I got to say, I know what's going to happen, but I got to see it because I'm interested in one of my boys, one of the future of the WWE, of uh, the guy who's going to be, or at least was going to be the champion in a few years and is now potentially, you know, I don't know, somehow sat on Triple H's dog in, in catering or something. My boy Austin Theory, the best young prospect. I won't well, I won't say now the best young prospect. He's one of the best young in-ring talents. He was the best prospect until they started punishing. He's the only guy that's come out worse since Vince has been gone. Anyway, they ha he has a single match with Seth Rollins. I'm okay, and again, there's the you know they've had words or whatever the Money in the Bank briefcase that is poor the only poor thing that or the only thing that poor Austin has left. But this is a heel match. And I'm again, who's the goddamn heel? Can we at least, you know, establish somebody? And theory right now looks better physically than Seth does. So as they started having the match, Seth was working as the baby face. He was either that or they just want to make theory look like shit because he was foiling all of uh, Theory's efforts, and he was in control. They went to the floor for a while. And then finally, Theory shoves Seth off the ropes 
out on the floor to start some heat. They go to the break, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, now all of his heat's going to be in break. But no, thankfully, when they came back, he was still getting the heat on old Seth. And again, theory is remarkable at his age. The little things, the the ring positioning and placement, the way he does stuff, just his the whole athletic physical presentation, he's got the little stuff. I would have loved to have had a kid like that in OVW. And finally, Seth fights back and hits a bunch of dives. And this is when I was thinking, and I know Seth's one of the best in-ring talents they've got in the company right now, but he works the modern style match. I would love to see Theory work against a really top in-ring guy from 30 years ago that was in his prime, not today. I'm not talking about a, you know, he's 70 now or whatever. I'm talking about you transplant a really good worker. My God, a Terry Funk or goddamn whatever from 30 or 35 years ago and see him against Austin Theory today. I bet you that he could work just as well at real pro wrestling as he could at the modern style. Anyway, they did a bunch of back and forth stuff at the finish, ducking and kicking and swinging, and you could actually see the fans clapping and moving as well as hearing the audio. So they were apparently into it, unlike normally when they're sitting on their hands. And then finally, Rollins, Seth Franklin Rollins, Foiled a pedigree and hit the curb stomp one, two, three. And I knew he was going to lose. Theory loses again. But, you know, I, they were pushing him in a bizarre way with Vince. And I won't say too quick, but in a bizarre way with Vince. But at least they were pushing him. And now, since Vince has been gone, I don't think he's... I don't think he's beat his meat, much less anybody else. So I don't know what's going on, but I love this kid. But we were an hour in the show, and it had two matches and a fight. Yeah, I can't explain the booking either, unless, you know, one day there's a documentary, and he says, yeah, they spent a year trying to humble me because I was arrogant, and I own it. And, you know, he tries to blame himself for whatever. He's really talented. His promo was good, too, before the match. Yeah, he could talk. He's got a little personality. And I enjoyed the match. I thought it was a really good match. A lot of near falls. The crowd was reacting to everything, like you said. He's really, really good. And you look at him in there, and he looks like a wrestler. And just, you know, again, he's young. And I not only saw, I first thought, you know, the Austin Theory, he's a good-looking guy. He's got the physique. You know, you think of a guy in a long robe like that in the territory days or a ravishing Rick Rude as he gets older. I saw Rick Rude. We worked with Rick Rude. I've told stories about that when he was the same age as this guy. And Jesus Christ, he couldn't hardly stick his thumb in his ass compared to what Theory is doing. And he got, and I'm not knocking Rick Rude because he became one of the best in-ring heels in the business. But that early, you know, anyway. So did you like the... The sublime and the ridiculous, was this what you were talking about the first hour and then we went downhill? Roman Reigns and Paul Heyman come out. Yeah, this is the end and, of the show, this segment. Well, I was about to say, where can the, how can this ever possibly go wrong? And we found out. But 
The fans were chanting, oosie, oosie, they've got something. Not feeling very oosie, that fucking promo. Anyway, Reigns cut a great promo. Uh, no reason to browbeat it to death, but he sounds and looks and speaks exactly like he's presented and like he should. Does a great job. Then he gives it to Heyman to try to put Logan Paul over because he couldn't honestly... You know, he said, I can't honestly say this guy's a threat. And then Paul Lee, you know, recovers and backhandedly puts Logan Paul over a little bit in another great delivery and then mentions the, now they're going, and this is a good idea. Again, it's old-fashioned wrestling. The guy's got however many steel screws in his knuckles, is in, in his hand, it gives him a knockout punch. They did the same thing with Luger when he had the arm surgery and had the metal thing put in his arm, blah, blah, blah. But then, here comes the Miz. And the Miz comes out in his ridiculous Kermit Green accoutrements and validates Logan Paul's right hand because he knows him well. He brought him into business. And then offers his assistance to Roman Reigns, and Roman Reigns says, why is everyone talking about Logan Paul knocking me out and knocks out Miz? So the whole show is the faces fighting faces and heels fighting heels. But, and then I will let you comment on this, after the break, the Miz is in the back acting goofy again with an ice pack on his chin and doing a comedy routine with Mustafa Ali. So the top box office traction in the company, without Brock Lesnar being involved maybe, knocks the guy out and five minutes later he's doing a fucking comedy skit about his tiny balls. Your thoughts? I don't hate the Miz like you do. <laughs> if he came out there in normal clothes, everything he does would be acceptable in the world of professional wrestling. But the way he dresses, to me, I don't. I agree with you on that. The Mustafa Ali thing, the Gargano show long stuff. You know, we hear a lot about WWE approaching AEW wrestlers. This is why. They need more guys on this show. They actually just don't have the people to fill up this show with. And I know there's going to be a big Mustafa Ali or a big Johnny Gargano fan that's going to disagree with me, but I said that's where the show ended for me. That's where it felt like the main event caliber people on the show ended for me. Yeah. And I zoned out for the rest of the show. I watched it, but I zoned out. Well, I'll bring you back to the zone for a second, because just to uh, gloss over... Damian Priest with Judgment Day wrestled Carl Anderson with AJ and Luke Gallows as they apparently are going to every week. They're going to have some interaction between these six individuals. Anderson wins with a backslide out of nowhere. They have a big six-way. Ripley nutshots Luke and then challenges the other babyfaces to do something about it. And the heels jump them from behind and get heat. And the security that, as I said, worked here in hour one has apparently been laid off because they just went on and on until the heels were finished and decided to quit. 
And we're an hour and 45 minutes into the program at this point. And then there was one more thing that I liked on this show, and it's JBL. Bradshaw is a fucking hoot. Because what was it last week or on one of the shows, they were in Oklahoma and he was able to come out and just be, you know, easy as pie, the Texas-Oklahoma rivalry, right? Which is real and everybody knows about it. Now they're in Texas. He's got to be a heel in his home state. So he comes over or comes out and puts Texas over huge Texas and all the great Texans that he mentioned in the past does the big baby face promo about Texas and Texans until you snowflakes came along and turned the whole state into an embarrassment. And with a bing, he switches heel and effortlessly and he's having so much fun doing it because that's the thing about Bradshaw. He genuinely enjoys being a fucking smart ass. And that's why he's a great heel promo. And it was great until he introduced Baron Von Corbin. And then that's the thing that he's been tasked to do is trying to get this fucking weird-looking creature over as a main event guy. And that, you know, he came out, Corbin in his Larry Storch F-Troop hat and his warm-up suit made out of Aunt Lola's couch cover and tried to cut a promo, and then out came our truth what's up. And at that point, I gave up because now they're trying to push a revamped Baron von Corbin against our truth who has been involved with girls and fucking 24-7 title changes and backstage skits for, what, ever since we've been watching this program. And they're going to try to sell that. So I gave up and fast forwarded it. Um, Spiders, because it was Halloween, Spiders flew out of Riddle's ass on his entrance this week into a ring that was filled with pumpkins and skeletons. And Matt Riddle was dressed as Ezekiel because Elias was in his corner. And then Gable and Otis came out dressed as Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley on the Saturday Night Live male stripper sketch, and they did the dance, and they had a trick or street fight match with a ring filled with pumpkins and skeletons and the ghost of Christmas past. And then The Miz wrestled Mustafa Ali and then Johnny Gargano did a tell-all sit-down interview about the plot that Dexter Loomis is conducting somehow uh, this whole it, it was written and performed by 10-year-olds and then the main event was a six-girl tag and that was Monday Night Raw, folks. The the former home of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and The Undertaker and et cetera, et cetera, has been reduced to cable access level television. That Gargano segment has to be seen. His acting is so bad. 
And then Byron Saxon's acting is even worse. So you have the interviewer and the wrestler, and it almost looks, but the way it's cut, it almost looks like they're not even in the same room. And well, I, I don't know if I'd want to be in the same room with either one of them doing that shit either. Horrible. Whose idea was that? I, I again, I don't know what kind of pictures Gargano has of somebody important. Maybe, maybe he's the one that stooged on Vince. Maybe he had the secret files all along. That's how he's stayed on television. Well, it's certainly no prize to watch Raw. However, transition time, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we can As you hear the sound of a power drill in the background, Brian Last is going to drill in and zero in on his next subject. Perhaps on another Monday Night Raw, the World Series won't be rained out. And you'll be able to watch that game and wonder, I wonder, who will hit more home runs tonight? Or better put, how many home runs will player X hit tonight? Or better put, well, I wonder, wonder, ooh, who's going to win prize picks? You want your daily fantasy? <laughs> you want to make your entries? You want to make your player projections? And select more or less. Well, I wonder, wonder, oh, but oh, oh, who's going to get rich on prize picks? You know, you can win a lot of money at this horse shit. And I'll cut this up, <laughs> folks. Now, Safe, what's the matter with you? No, we're talking dollars here. We're talking De Niro, big bucks. We're talking cashola. Cashish, even you can win this stuff. They even give you some. If you give them some, they'll give you some. It's like my favorite number, not 69, 68. Give me one, I'll owe you one. That's what Nikolai Volkov used to say. It never made sense when you broke it down, but it was funny the way he delivered it, what with his accent and everything. However, let's say that you want to win some money and you know something about sports and you want to play not against other people, but against the projections. Because you've heard about these things. They've been on the news. Now there's there's projections of people. I guess they call them holograms. And you can play against these holograms of people. Now, you don't want to play against, I don't know, Bear Bryant or George Steinbrenner or some expert. But if you just find a projection or a hologram or whatever they they call it of just some random nitwit that doesn't know anything about sports, you could probably win. Have you seen these projections? They look lifelike. I, I mean, I've seen projections from prize picks, and of course, I've seen holograms. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what you're saying, to be quite honest. Oh, we, well, you may, well, the, 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 you're, it's playing you versus the projections on prize picks. I thought that meant that they actually projected into your house a, an opponent for you. What are the projections on prize picks? Well, they have a projection for a certain game or a sort, uh, I can't even talk, <laughs> or a certain athlete or what they'll do that day. Let's say it's one of the greats on the Mets when baseball season was happening before the playoffs ended for the Mets. And you could say, I think this player, Starling Marte, is going to steal three bases today. And then prize picks may say, you're crazy. We project two stolen bases. Why do you have me explaining this? Why don't you explain it? Well, the important thing is somebody going to call the cops. This guy's running around stealing shit right and left. Somebody needs to bring him to justice. Well, they've given us some copy here. For example, you can say, hey, tonight I'm taking Patrick Mahomes 
to throw for more than 320 passing yards, Derrick Henry to rush for less than than 85 yards, Cooper Cup to score more than 0.5 touchdown. Now, how can you do Have they changed the rules of football? Do they credit you sometimes for half a touchdown? I thought if you made a touchdown, it was pretty much all or nothing, kind of like being pregnant. But if you, if Cooper's cup or scup, if Cooper's cup scores more than 0.5 touchdowns, you could win some money. See, that's that's how it works. That's what's going on. I understand now. You just you pick two to five players, and if they score more or less or do more or less or win more or less or lose more or less, well, you more or less win. You can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. And Prize Picks offers projections on any sport you watch. NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, PGA, college football, men's college basketball, women's college basketball, soccer, WNBA, esports, NASCAR, tennis, MMA, boxing, disc golf, Euro basketball, cricket, cockfighting, and many more. No cockfighting. I'm so they scratched that one out. They must have discontinued that. You can make entries in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. And as you have heard by Brian's succinct explanation, it's very easy to understand. You can make safe and fast withdrawals, and it's even easier to make deposits. And they're currently operational, which apparently means legal, in over 30 states in Canada, but they're growing. You know, we got 20 states that are just lagging behind. And right now, folks, download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com. That's prize as in prize, picks as in P-I-C-K-S, prizepicks.com to sign up and play now. First-time users get a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code JCE. If you put in $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, they'll give you $50. If you try to take out something without depositing something first, they'll call the law on your ass. And don't forget to enter promo code JCE at sign up for an instant deposit match of up to $100 and figure out whether Tyreek Hill is going to catch less than three and a half passes. If you catch a half a pass, doesn't that mean you drop the other half? Let's talk about someone else's picks. This question was sent to cornydrythrough at gmail.com from Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. Kurt Angle recently said, He thinks Seth Rollins is the next Shawn Michaels. The quote, It's not much of a leap to say Seth is the next Shawn Michaels. I believe he will be eventually. He's not there yet, because Shawn put in a lot more years. But he does remind me of Shawn, because everybody he wrestles, he has five-star matches with. What are your thoughts on Angle's take on Seth Rollins? I wish the boys would quit using so-and-so star matches or whatever. And because then that, that just feeds the, the, the beast as they say. But, um, at first he's the next Shawn Michaels. What is Kurt mad at Seth? But no, he was praising him, complimenting him with that. I hope he'll not be the, he won't be the next Shawn Michaels personally as a, as a person, because Seth, I don't, last time I heard, didn't have any of those bad habits. God, as a, I think he's making the comparison because 
they resemble each other in terms of they were the guy that was long in the WWE at their individual times that was long and lean and athletic and fast moving and, you know, that type of thing. I, I don't know that you can compare Seth with Shawn Michaels in terms of, you know, drawing ability and, and box office. It was, you know, 20, 30 years difference and no one guy now has any, well, maybe Brock Lesnar, maybe Roman Reigns, but otherwise that has any real effect on the box office. As far as, I mean, I, Seth is good, but Michaels, the one thing you have to say about the obnoxious little prick that he was, he was nearly the best in the business, especially at the the WWF style of the 90s. That's what I was going to ask you, because... You know, whatever you want to say, and you, I'm talking to the, not the royal you, but Jim Cornette you, yeah. whatever you want to say about Sean personally, his work stood out by far. It stood out yeah. in, in its time. It was advanced. It was spectacular. It was an amazing performance, sometimes just all about him, but it, it was what it was. Does Rollins' work, as good as it is, stand out from the pack the same way Sean's did? I, I can't, well, <laughs> the the overall level of talent of the pack is probably definitely lower than it was 30 years ago, but I'm not sure that he stands out as anything groundbreaking or a lot of people saying without doubt in any companies that people were saying during that period of time in the mid nineties, regardless of company, well, that's Shawn Michaels, he's the best in the, in the ring in the business. Not the best promo, not the best human being, but the best in the ring. And I, you know, I don't know if you can say that about our friend Franklin, but he's one of the best in the company, if you know, in the ring. And especially for that modern athletic style. Who's the best in the ring in the WWE right now? You know, it, it, would it be Lesnar because he is always exactly who he's supposed to be, or is it Gunther because of the same reason? I don't know, but uh, but Seth is close. Jim, our next question sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Jeff Pollard, Leesville, Louisiana. With all that's happened, maybe it's Pollard now that I see it. With what? All <laughs> Here's Jeff Pollard's question, or Pollard, but probably sure. Pollard. With all that's happened, has 2022 been the wildest and craziest year ever in wrestling? Yes. Really? I don't know. I just wanted to give you a one-word answer and see if you'd fucking freak out. Um, I, I don't, what, I mean, I don't think so. My God, the, every year in wrestling is wild for one reason or another. I think everybody's now is going... Oh, Jesus Christ, you know, they got in a fight in AEW and the EVPs got suspended and punk and chaos or whatever the fuck. I mean, when you think about the things that have happened in at different eras in the past in wrestling, if there had been social media, if there hadn't been kayfabe, if there had been Twitter and 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 people had been running their fucking mouths instead of keeping it inside the business, good lord, people would have been fucking aghast. Whether it be, you know, violent fights amongst uh 
you know, wrestlers in the locker rooms or double crosses for the world title or, you know, guys getting fucking, you know, in all kinds of issues with each other that, you know, would just, to- or do- doing things on the road or whatever that would totally not fly in today's environment. And that was on a regular basis because there were so many more matches, so many more wrestlers, so many more territories. So if you just sat down and compiled all those individual stories, I don't know that 2022 would have been the wildest by any stretch of the imagination. It's just fresh and everybody knows everything. In terms of overall craziness, I'm trying to think of some good suspects. What do you think's crazier? 97 or 84? Uh, crazy. 97 was probably crazier. Or 85, I could even say. Well, shit in 84 and 85 was surprising and shocking and revolutionary or game-changing or whatever, but it kind of all made sense. <laughs> but 97 was just fucking... The lunatics were in charge at that point in both companies, I think, by then. And the territory's on the way out. But, I mean, see, that's the thing. If we were... If we're talking about all time, what do you think they said in fucking 31? The original Montreal double cross. Or what do you think, you know, when 73, they're like, it'll never be another year like this. Yeah. You know, it's so it, it just changes because it's, you know, time moves on, but wild things always happen. What about you personally, your time in and around wrestling as a fan and as someone in the business, what do you think personally is the craziest year you've experienced? Ugh. Honestly, now I'm completely lost. I'm trying to think of a crazy, the craziest year. I mean, the crazy good, 86 was crazy good. So we're all making a fucking fortune. You know, buildings were full. Ratings were through the roof. 95 was crazy in the other direction because not only did I close Smoky Mountain, Vince couldn't even make a fucking profit. And with all the goofy shit going on, it was crazy in in 89 when actually 88, but the crazy was realized in 89 when Turner Broadcasting had bought Crockett and we were all like, oh yeah. And then we were like, oh no. It, it took six or eight weeks till the new year to find out that this was going to be goddamn bad news instead of good news. And I mean, you know, since then, for fuck's sake, 2001, every other company of any size in the business goes out of business, except for events. And in 2001, the only two profitable wrestling promotions in the United States of America running on a full-time basis with television were the WWE and Ohio Valley Wrestling. The only two. So that was crazy. But now it's crazy when you think about it that there's all these goddamn multiple promotions and they're running somehow despite the fact that the amount of people who are watching wrestling is goddamn a fifth of what it was in 2001. But if we're looking at 2022 in terms of craziness, Vince McMahon's last match with Steve Austin and then Vince McMahon 
resigns from WWE, a new regime in WWE, in AEW, it's really all about the locker room fight. We're still talking about it. And now when you really think about it, things were building up to it for quite some time. That's a pretty crazy story that we still don't have a conclusion to. It's a pretty crazy year, all things considered. Well, that's because there's so many crazy people in it now. You get a crazier year every time you get crazier people, and people are just getting crazier. It's crazy. Well, let's see how crazy this next question is, Jim. This was sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Nemo in Ocala, Florida. Captain Nemo! Or is it Little Nemo? Well, it just says Nemo here, and there's a great new Little Nemo uh, in Slumberland collection that Tashin Books just put out. It's fantastic. But... Remember, Jim, a lot of people are new to the show. A lot of people don't know the insides of the business the way you do. With that said, I hear throughout the episodes of pushing a wrestler or getting him over. Is there a difference between a push and getting over? Also, what is the process of a push? (laughs) Thank you both for the countless laughs, especially through the bullshit that this world is going through. Well, if I was better on my nouns and adverbs and adjectives, but a push is the uh, is a promotional push, obviously. It's a promotional uh, a concerted effort by the matchmaker, the booker, the promoter to elevate one of their talents that they feel deserving of it to a higher spot on the card, to main event status or whatever, to use him, as they say. You know, that's uh, the guys always say, I wish so-and-so would use me better. Well, if you're being given a push, you're being used and better. You're uh, attempting to be elevated. Getting over is hopefully the byproduct of the push in that They push you, and you get over. You become more popular. Or if you're a heel, more unpopular. You become a bigger box office attraction. You become more recognized by the fans, and you're bought in their minds as a legitimate guy that should be in the main event rather than, you know, why the fuck's this jabroni on top? So it's, you know, that's the difference between a push and getting over. You are... Hopefully, if everything works, you are getting over while you're being pushed. So, but it's it's connected, but it's not the same thing. If one is one is a cause, and the other is an effect, right? There have been many examples of guys getting pushed well past where the audience is accepting of them. Sometimes it's with the promoter's own children. Oh yeah, well, some you just because you push somebody doesn't mean that they're actually going to get over. It doesn't always work that way. The cake doesn't always rise. Nothing is ever guaranteed. And then there's also the case of where you can push somebody, and even if they get over to some degree, you keep pushing them until you push them over a cliff because people are not ready to buy them at the level that you're trying to sell them at. Wheeler Useless, Daniel Garcia. Um, or I was about to say if the, the, the George Goulas fit the first category in that, I mean, you know, actually Nick had such a strong promotion when he started George, that George did get cheered by people for a while, but it got old quick and he went over that cliff, but there's some, when you push, and we've also talked about 
well, if so-and-so had had the push that so-and-so's had, he'd be the goddamn biggest box office attraction in wrestling. If you take a guy who really shouldn't necessarily be in that spot and you smash him over and you push him and you just, you know, make him like second coming of, you know, Jesus, and they will cheer for him. But if you'd taken somebody who had more of the qualities or capabilities or the fans already liked a little better and given them the same type of treatment, then your returns would have been bigger. That's somehow how that's phrased. What about it when it goes the other way and a wrestler somehow on their own starts getting over and then you decide to go to the push as opposed to a promoter or a booker saying, I want this guy to get over. Let's give him a good push right out of the gate. Well, yes. And that's, uh, again, that's just being a good booker and recognizing when there's something about a guy that people are liking or not liking in the case of a heel. You know what I'm saying? There's something about this guy that's getting over with people. So let's continue that. Let's try to help that. Let's not fight against the tide. If they're bringing the house down for a guy in the first match, maybe let's, you know, give him more to do. Now, again, sometimes in the modern era, the fans, and you've seen this, Brian, the fans on their own will just decide as a rib because we're bored with this whole show. We're going to cheer the fuck out of a guy that nobody really should give a shit about if the show was any good. You've seen that. Yeah. And sometimes you have to recognize (laughs) that and, you know, maybe give the people what they want, but at the same time, you can't sacrifice your entire program at the, you know, at that behest. But in other cases, the thing you're not supposed to do is if the the guy is getting over with people for some reason, don't just decide then, oh, okay, I'm going to use him, but I'm going to figure out some other gimmick or some other angle to put him in or some somebody else to team him. I'm just going to change a lot of the shit about this guy and use him better. But then you may be changing the thing that they kind of like to begin with. So just give him a little more to do and see if they keep responding and, and start paying attention more to the guy and why they're liking him. And is it a rib just because they're bored or do they really like the guy? And if they do really like the guy, then let's not change whatever has instigated this appeal that we didn't really count on. Let's try to accentuate that. But, you know, or sometimes, you know, people will just say, oh, goddamn, I'll I'll do something with this guy. And then, well, the Heartbreakers, classic example. Yeah, yeah. In, in Ohio Valley Wrestling, uh, Antonio the Promise Thomas and Romeo Roselli with their manager, Morris Green. You make Mo Green with Morris Green. And they did the whole gimmick. I did not contribute anything except putting him on television to show it. They came up with the the gimmick. They came up with the fucking, the, the tights and the outfit, the music, the entrance, the whole nine yards. They were making their own videos, right? They And yes, because also uh, at the time, Joey Mercury, Ed was captaining the ship for him and Johnny Nitro, Johnny, John Hennigan, Johnny of the many names, and Molina when they were M&M. 
And they had the camera and they were going around. There was a kid that also in OVW was doing film school, helping them edit or something. I can't remember. But nevertheless, yeah, they'd go to the mall and do their own fucking video and just bring it out. I just have to look at it. Okay. Won't get us kicked off the air. Play it. And the people loved them. They became from a preliminary heel tag team. You know, they became the most popular babyface team without us turning them. They had kids dressing up like them and coming and doing their entrance dance and everything. And when I saw that, I said, okay, I'm not going to, they've got kids dressing like them. I'm not going to immediately next week have some heels jump them and get juice on them and leave them laying and switch them babyface. I'm going to let them keep doing what they're doing. And, you know, I bet you here pretty soon they're going to wrestle a heel team. And and then they're probably going to wrestle another heel team. And it's just going to happen that way. And then, the, and then, of course, the WWE office notices. And they bring the guys up and they change their name because, of course, Michaels, nobody could be heartbreakers with heartbreak kid around. And they didn't bring Mo Green because he wasn't under contract. And they changed their entrance music from It's Raining Men to whatever the fuck. So nobody could dance to it or do the whole fucking thing. And then they made them heels, but they had them working like heels. And I think they didn't let them wear their fucking boa either. Not a constrictor, but a feather one. And then they were dead. So there you go. How hard is it for a booker to sit back and let things happen or to let things breathe a little bit as opposed to forcing a vision into every single thing? Well, that's, I kind of understand that question you're asking. I'm not sure that everybody else is going to have their own interpretation. So I don't know how to answer otherwise than to say, you know, I always thought I want to make sure that every minute of the television show means something and matters and is being applied properly, but that doesn't mean rush everything. You know, Paul Orndorff was one of my top heels in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and one of the best workers in the business. I'll give him an eight-minute match against Rip Rogers because Rip can fucking work his ass off. And, you know, that's uh, that at the time, that was a long TV match in some cases. But you know it's going to be good there's not something happening every fucking second, but the object is to have a big star and a real good match on television, and he wins because you're using him in the house shows. Other times, you want to get things done and over with. Other times, you you shoot an angle. You don't want to come back the next week after a beheading and have those guys throttling each other again, trying to pull their eyeballs out. You've just done it. Let it breathe. Let it register. I always believed from all the great wrestling programs that I saw when I was growing up and all the great wrestling programs that I was on when I got into business, VTRs from the previous week, uh, VTRs from the arenas, to take you out of the TV facility that you're in and show you something that the fans think, either from the arena, oh, I'm not supposed to see, or from the previous week's television, because especially back in those days, and then again, 
even after there were VCRs, people go on vacation. People aren't chained to the God. Wrestling fans are creatures of habit, yes. But life intervenes sometimes. You got kids, got to go to a ball game. You didn't see the wrestling show on TV. So we did an important angle. We're going to VTR the high points the following week rather than have those people come back and get in another goddamn fight. We've just done that. How many fights can they have before the one that we're going to make them pay to see? So you do the angle, have the big fight. The next week you VTR it. You fucking have comments from one or both of the participants like, the next time I see that motherfucker, next week on the show, I'm going to have a match. He better not show up. You tease forward. You let the thing breathe a little bit. Is any of this asking answering the question you asked? Somewhat, yes. What's the other part of some instead of what? Well, you know, I mean, just we've seen in recent years, and I guess I'm trying to figure out how much of it is a WWE phenomenon, how much of it is something that would have happened forever. Like, for instance, crazy example. In 85, in the brief time he was there, if Terry Taylor had gotten over in the NWA like gangbusters, would things have still played out the same way? Would Dusty have tried to hold on to him, or would Dusty have said, you know what, I can't work with this fucking guy, and I don't want to work with this fucking guy, send him back to Watts. How much of it is, you know, how much of it is, okay, this is happening, we got to put up with this guy, we got to deal with it. How much of that was happening then versus the thing now where, oh, this guy's kind of gotten himself over on his own on social media, let's resent him for it, and let's, (laughs) let's not capitalize on this. Let's actually use this as something to punish him for some reason. Well, no, that's stupid. I mean, you know, that's the thing is uh, when you've got somebody that's getting over on your show, they're still getting over on your show. So I've never advocated, uh, you know, I've had probably when I booked in various places, I probably had guys think that I could have used them better because everybody thinks that. But I can't think of the first time that I deliberately said, the people like this guy, but I don't. (laughs) If I didn't like the guy, he probably wouldn't be there because I'm the fucking booker. And see, that's the thing is, is it's a modern thing, maybe, of burying a guy that's over on your show, not because he's getting over you and you're also a member of the office. That happened a bunch of times. But just because you don't like him, he's on your fucking show. But the the thing is now the writers and or whoever else is involved, it's not really their show. They're getting paid the same regard, just like the wrestlers are, regardless of whether a ticket is sold or a viewer watches TV or not. They've got a job and a salary and a guarantee. And in merchandise gets in, oh, you get more, but the writers, so they don't, if somebody, especially that they've told the boss, Oh, this guy ain't worth a shit. If suddenly the people are cheering and yelling for him and reacting, they're thinking, oh, fuck, I'm going to look like an idiot. Maybe that's why that happens. I do not know. Like, look at FTR. I mean, here's an example in AEW. Forget about Vince McMahon doing that to people like Zack Ryder or whoever it may be. Throughout yeah, the well, years. there's we've, we've mentioned that. It's because the executive vice presidents who will make the same amount of money, regardless of how the company does, because... Tony, it's Tony's ass on the line, or his dad's. They didn't want this guy to get over them. And so they, or this team to get over them. So they set about making sure that they didn't. 
that's obvious. That's been obvious. And most people aren't even disagreeing with it anymore. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, unless there's, there have been plenty of instances in wrestling history of a booker or a guy who was a wrestler, but also had an interest in the office, making sure to cut the knees out from under a guy that was getting over because he was threatened for his position. And in some cases, a top guy that wasn't connected to the office and was even more threatened because he wasn't connected to the office. Sometimes the guy that did have a piece of the promotion thought if, if this guy gets over, gets strong, over stronger than me, he might be able to fucking muscle in and then it's less for everybody if he gets a piece. Or it might be the same way that that guy got a piece to begin with. Getting over so strong, he told a promoter, hey, give me a piece or I'm fucking walking. So that kind of shit happened, but it's a modern thing that a guy is just on the card is just starting to get over and for no apparent reason otherwise than it wasn't their plan, the staff of writers or whoever the fuck, a la this Matt Ryder fella, just don't do anything with him. And that's just because they can't be bothered to be proven that they were wrong and it doesn't affect their money either way. When a booker found a guy that unlikely guy that was going to get over, it meant that he might sell more tickets, especially if he's a local boy, hometown hero or whatever. So he was all, all for doing that until of course, the point in time where that guy would threaten him. Well, Jim, our next question sent to Courtney drive through at gmail.com from Rob in Brussels, Belgium. Did old school wrestlers do fantasy booking while on the road? <laughs> I could imagine this was done for laughs or possibly brainstorming how to enhance current angles that they may be booked in. If so, any memorable hypotheticals you could share with us? Oh, God. Is that uh, when most people who became bookers impressed someone so they became bookers in the car? Well, actually, that's the thing. I mean, as far as hypothetical, like, oh, gosh, I, you know, on the way back from Bossier City, Louisiana one night, I thought of this. I ain't going to. But, yes, that's where a lot of guys, that's where Jerry Jarrett impressed Roy Welch in the car on the way from Nashville to Memphis and back every Monday night. Jerry was, you know, he was a, a kid that he had graduated college and not gotten in the wrestling business. He had, be had become... Oh, God damn, what the fuck? I think he had done sales and some shit, but the wrestling bug had bit him because of his mother, and he was around it, etc. And so he starts riding with Roy Welch and giving his ideas. And Roy would say, well, what did you think of the matches tonight? Well, I thought so-and-so or such-and-such or whatever. And that's the way he ended up being a booker before he even was a wrestler. Um, and that's where you sometimes would impress a veteran or somebody with, you know, God, does this kid actually kind of knows, you know, what the fuck that he's talking about. So, yeah, and but when the boys were just amongst themselves and everybody was on the same level, yes, there was a lot of guys fantasy booked, uh, goofy angles, but not like in any detail or writing anything down. They'd shoot ideas around like, yeah, fucking so-and-so he's a stiff we ought to have a goddamn match where the loser has to get beat with a sack of wet hammers or whatever and somebody else would chime in an idea 
and just make a joke out of it. But in a lot of instances, especially, you know, the Midnight Express and I used to do this. I can imagine that a lot of guys did it. They would come up with not necessarily booking, but finishes. And or, you know, if, if you had sway or pull with the booker, then you might come up with an angle and, and pitch it to them. Or if you if you were already in an angle with a team, but hey, this would be a good finish to do with those guys. And then we could come back with saying you'd tell the booker that. What about if we did this and we could come back with this stipulation or whatever? If he liked it, he could work it in. And that happened a lot. Or just, you know, guys talking about their business. Especially if you if it was a tag team and a manager in the car, they could be bouncing stuff off of each other. If you were three or four, you know, single wrestlers in a car, you might not necessarily want to bounce a bunch of angles or ideas off the other guys. They might steal some of them because everybody's doing their own thing. And you, it's not like you were in a car with people from the other side. It was either all baby face or all heels. But the smart guys would do that. And a lot of times, a lot of booking was done in the car anyway because if the booker was also a wrestler, he was in the car as much as the the other boys were, so you'd have a situation where, you know, a young kid would be driving, and maybe there'd be two veterans, one in the front, one in the back, but the booker'd be in the back with the dome light on with goddamn book out or writing television or something. You know, Lawler used to write Saturday morning Memphis TV on a legal pad in the back seat of the car on the way back from the Saturday or the Friday night town. At about fucking midnight. And then you get to the fucking TV station uh, the next morning and run off four Xerox copies, one for the wall in the locker room, one for the fucking director, one for the finish room, and, and well, and five, and two for Lance and Dave. And I still, I found one, actually, the day that Terry Funk ripped my pants off. I stole the format and saved it. We weren't allowed to have shit on oh, paper. Oh, wow. Wow. But I, and it's base it's handwritten on a legal pad, the matches and the breaks and what was to go on the tape and what was dark just for Memphis. And that's you know, and that's what they worked off of because they didn't leave documentation for people to find. Nevertheless, where were we going with this? Well, I want to ask you a question that popped into my head before, you know, because we all hear about these stories about wrestlers back in the day on the road. They would tell stories, they would learn about the business, they would go over their matches and stuff. If we look at 84, when you're relatively a rookie, I mean, you've been at it for a few years, but you're now in the main event position of Mid-South Wrestling. You leave one of these shows, you're working with the Rock and Roll, Fantastics, whoever. TA and two. In the car, it's Dennis, it's you, it's Bobby, maybe Buddy Landell. How does the conversation start? If you're going to talk about that, that night's match, who starts it and how does it, how does it go? <laughs> Everyone always talks about these conversations in the car. When it comes to... A, reviewing or talking about something you just did how would it go well that's a th if if you had a great match there'd be about 10 or 15 minutes of back patting and then you'd get to listening to the radio or telling stories or whatever if you had a shitty match it'd be the whole goddamn way home what the fuck and it either if it was specifically somebody's fault you would be venting and bitching or if something didn't work, you'd be figuring it out. Or if, you know, if, if somebody, one of the fans hit the ring and you had a skirmish or whatever, you'd be talking about that. But generally, if something was bad, you spent more time 
you know, on that and either complaining about the guy because to get it out of your system or complaining about the situation or trying to figure out, you know, what to fix about it or whatever. And it wasn't really, I mean, if, if something had happened that we couldn't wait to get in the car and God damn, thank God we're out of there. Boy, can you believe that motherfucker? Then anybody could start it. But if we're just driving down the road, then actually anybody could start it again because somebody might think, you know, when we do that double backdrop, what about if fucking Ricky shot right underneath and rolled up and you just blurt that out and somebody would say something about it? How long after you guys started in Mid-South, because I don't know how much you would have rode with him ever before that in Memphis, how long after you started in Mid-South did Dennis realize you observed everything? Um, He pretty much knew already because, well, besides the fact that He'd been in the territory for a while, and because I was Jimmy Hart's understudy, I'd been I'd managed him in Norvell at ringside a couple times. And, you know, so he had worked with me. We'd been in the locker room, and then he'd known me before as a photographer for ages. So the point is, you know, he knew from the start that, well, that was his comment to Watts when Watts apparently asked him something to the effect of, well, what's your opinion of Cornette's managing or uh, promos or whatever? I, Dennis said, he can talk his ass off. Of course, he wasn't going to disagree with Bill Watts at that point because I think he knew Watts was already interested. But um, So it, it wasn't like when I went to Louisiana and some of the guys in the locker room there heard me Okay, Bobby, remember, bing, 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 I'm going over the finish for him. They kind of give me the side eye, like, this kid looks like he's fucking 16, and he's telling these guys what they're doing. But then once they got it, only wrestling too, he thought I was had to be on cocaine <laughs> because of the fucking promos. And wrestling too was obviously, he was an older gentleman, he probably... At that point, he was like Nick Goulas. Ah, oh, them boys taking them marijuana pills again. I like a good second all. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, you know, they knew because I and and we were in the locker room together, you know, in Memphis when after I got into business, even before I managed him, and I'd ridden with Bobby a lot, so that wasn't an issue. Every once in a while. You know, uh, when I first went to the WWF, I think also some of the guys that hadn't been around were like, what the? but by then I was a little older and been around a while, but it was, it was disconcerting. I think for some of the guys at first, because I looked so young and they'd never heard of me, but then after they heard the promos or they, you know, set and set in on one of our finish meetings or whatever, they're like, okay, we got it. Jim, our next question is one that a lot of people have sent in, and it's a quote from Booker T. I don't know if you've seen this, but I'll read it to you. I'm not exactly sure where he said this, and I'm trying to see if anyone in any of these emails... Well, Booker T had something to say, and he said it somewhere. (laughs) I've got a song I want to sing! Here's a quote from Booker T about AEW talent and what they're doing in their matches. AEW... They are one bad accident away from something really, really being done about what's going on in that company and people looking at it from a different perspective. They really are one bad accident away. I don't know if you saw one of my former students, Ember Moon. She kicked this girl so hard. There's no way you could brace yourself. Oh, Jesus Christ. So he's taking credit for training old uh, Athena. 
I had no idea how much I need her. Yeah. A good late Who song, but let's go back to the quote here from <laughs> Booker T. There's no way you could brace yourself for, you know, what I saw. Okay, is it cool? Are those guys, the fans, loving it? Yeah, yeah, they're loving it. But it's a reason why I'm still walking around today. He's talking like Bray Wyatt. I'm not sure what he's saying. Actually. Yeah, we're getting we're getting the idea, but it's you know a transcription well, conversation. There's a reason why I'm still in the gym training. It's because I knew how to go out and perform. It was a certain way on house shows. It was a certain way on overseas tours. It was a certain way on a Monday night or a Thursday night. It was a certain way on a pay per view. All right. That's a good rhyme. Yeah. And neither one of them was the same. When I see these guys going out and performing the way they are today, just throwing caution to the wind and not giving a damn about the person that they're working with, it's beyond me. Well, yes, and, and he's talking about what we've said here a bunch of times. You, your spot show match was different than your house show match was different than your TV match was different than your pay-per-view match, and all of them depended on who your opponent was and the 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 risk reward ratio is this going to if i take a risk here to, tonight and do something is this going to further my career or this angle is going to lead to me making a little more money because there's going to be more people in the house or what you had to evaluate these things on a regular basis every night every match multiple times in the matches sometimes in the in the territory days and in the days of even the early days of guaranteed contracts and up until the last 15 years or so, the top guys had a, you know, a, a sense of, of proportion of what they were doing and where they were doing it and how important it might be. And yes, if you're in the main event at WrestleMania, you're going to go balls to the wall. But, you know, you see these clips of these kids and they are kids, and they ain't going to get much older this way, doing this shit in barns and rec centers and the county fair. What? And you're like, what the fuck? Complain about the hair pulling at the county fair. Um. So that's that's one thing he's talking about. And also, yes, you you not only have to be in control of yourself, you have to be in control of your opponent. And that's what everybody still, I don't think, got the picture. We were talking about Ember Moon or Athena or whoever the fuck she is these days. Not being in proper control of people when she's putting them places or landing on top of them or being reckless with them. And I actually had a lot of people, well, Cornette, you said that about her because you're racist, but you used to watch Dr. Death and the Steiner brothers beat people up all that. No. No, I didn't. I never watched the Steiners or the or Dr. Death be needlessly reckless with people, unless it was a fucking personal situation in a match, but needlessly reckless with people because they were strong enough to put those people where they needed to be. So yes, they were throwing them all around, and if you talk about Steiners and the Nasty Boys, yes, that's all kind of reckless shit that they agreed to beforehand and everybody was on the same goddamn level. And nobody would, but again, you're talking about these kids that are on YouTube matches or these girls that are in fucking, you know, dark matches or whatever the fuck, just actively not only being reckless, but 
egregiously reckless with the dives and the furniture that doesn't work with you and or the indie shows with the broken glass and the fucking etc etc it's just insane and it's reckless and it's going to shorten careers and to his bigger point they're one bad accident away what he means is what's going to happen if or when somebody is paralyzed for the rest of their life or worse on TBS's air on live television. Hey, that Julia Hart incident, we almost saw it. Oh. We almost saw it right there. Because yeah. you want to talk about something that was unnecessary, there's one that was completely unnecessary. And again, within an inch, and she wouldn't be here. So what happens then? Then not only the television network is thinking, okay, and yes, it can happen in football, but I think we've all come to the realization, even as wrestling fans, that not only is football more popular than wrestling is these days, but also they'll give it more slack because it's a shoot. And we've told all the TV networks, like we told everybody else, this is all phony bullshit. So why did you allow these people in this performance, Tony, to break their necks and die on my live television show, on my network? Fuck you. That's what the boss of Warner Brothers Media conglomerate might say. And then who who gets killed or who gets paralyzed or who gets put in an iron lung? Their family sues, don't they? They sue somebody. Yeah, the cons. Well, there you go. And then, well, they'll probably also sue, since Turner Broadcasting, technically, or the parent company is is paying for that programming. They've got a financial interest. They got a lot of money. They'll get sued too. So yeah, that's one bad accident from spoiling the whole bunch girl. Well, Jim, if there were one bad accident, you'd be dead. But if there was a almost really bad accident, you may still be living and you may need a lawyer and you may need to sue. If there was, you know, what a perfect transition from that question, ladies and gentlemen, if there was a bad accident, either good, bad, or indifferent, and you do need to sue, I think by now all thought, all question over a potential attorney to represent you in court has been answered and answered by this man right here. Stephen P. News. If you need to an outlaw mud show or two. Those are the rest. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, he will indeed sue your posterior, your hiney. Your caboose, he'll sue it, and he will drain it dry if you, or I'm using the royal you here, in some way infringe upon the rights and privileges of his clients. Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. The magic number is the man that you need to call if you have been harmed, injured, terminated without cause or proper cause. If you have been trod upon or your rights and privileges as an American citizen frivolously bandied about 
and backhanded. If you have been dicked by the dangle dong of destiny and you need somebody to fight for your rights, Stephen P. New is the man to do it. He has had states of emergency declared in West Virginia. We've talked about that over the last several weeks. He has saved the opioid-addicted babies. He has brought the pharmaceutical companies to their knees. He's filing cases in state after state in multiple jurisdictions because he's spreading out to cover the world like Sherwin-Williams. He is a man who will take care of your interests and your rights and, most importantly, get you compensated for infringements upon same. And he loves the little animals. He contributes to the arts. And he's also a parent, a father, a husband, a son, and oftentimes a son of a bitch if you get on the wrong side of him. That's Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084, the consigliere of the cult of Cornet, standing by on that phone, ready to take your call and help you. Just like the guy that used to sit by the phone on the old home furniture commercials. You remember that way? You didn't watch TV in the 70s in Louisville, did you, Brian? Not much, no. I'm here alone, waiting by the phone, listening for one thing. Ring-a-ling, so make a bow to call me now and tell me how I can help you. All right. Well, on that down note, let's get a couple more questions and get out of here. You really love to sing. Oh, God. I just set you up. I love to sing <laughs> about the moon and the June and the spring. I love to sing about the skies. Well, let's see how you like to answer. Answer? Some questions. This one was sent to Corny Drive Through at gmail.com from Rowdy Roddy Rooster. Oh. In St. John's, Newfoundland. I know in the past. Wrestlers have hidden blades in their tights and in the tape on their wrists and fingers, but it seems incredible to me that guys actually hid blades in their mouths during matches. This practice seems dangerous and a little insane to me. Is this fact or fiction? If it is true, who were some of the names that hid blades in their mouths? And were there any mishaps? Such as a wrestler actually swallowing a blade or cutting up his mouth. Um, I can't call chapter and verse on the names of people who did that. I can tell you, yes, it definitely is a fact. I never looked on it comfortably either, but part of it is, and and, and there's no uh, video on this podcast because we do radio here. But if I could show you, if you do a blade right, the way most guys used to do it, it is somewhat flat and can be put in between, like, like the guys that, you know, the tobacco pouches, a little between the cheek and gum, right? They'd put it between or the bottom lip in there where the, the teeth are on the other side and keep it where you need it or in between the cheek and gum or whatever. And uh, Ray Stevens was noted for being able to get shot across the ring, do the upside down bump that he trademarked and did so well in the turnbuckle, go up sitting on top of the turnbuckle, hit his head on the post. And on his way back down, they said he'd take the blade out of his mouth and gig. So by the time he hit the ground, he was already bleeding. And I saw my old partner, Danny Davis, uh, when he was one of the nightmares. 
tried to do that in Evansville, Indiana one night, and they ended up taking him to the hospital because he got about 40 stitches across the top of his head. It was the blading while he was upside down that caused the issue. But, you know, that's guys would put it in different places, and that's one. But then the thing is, when you've got it and it's not taped to your finger, which that's dangerous also, because I would have been freaked out about that, because then you're laying hands on somebody. And unless you've got the tape back over the the cutting edge, then you're slicing and dicing them. But uh, guys who would carry it loose would also, if they had it in their mouth and they spit it out and they used it, they'd have to put it away somewhere. And that would generally either be in their tights or in their opponent's tights. A lot of times you'd see after a guy's bleeding, he's on his knees and the guy that's kicking the shit out of him is standing in front of him, punching him in the head. Everybody's looking at the punches to the head. The guy that's bleeding is sneaking his thumb and forefinger into the front of the guy's waistband of his tights to give him the blade. Or sometimes guys would put it in the top of the ring post. If the, if the ring post didn't have a cap on it, then it would drop all the way down to the bottom. And then the ring crew sometimes would turn a fucking ring post upside down and 15 or 20 blades would fall out. How do you feel about a handoff to a referee? Um, that's, it's, it, that's not bad. It's not a bad idea. It depends on how smooth the referee is. Bobby Eaton was always scared, and as much as he got juice, but he was always scared that people would see him get his blade off his wrist because he kept his tape to his wrist. So every once in a while, he'd have me hand it to him or he'd have the referee if he trusted him you know hand it to him but then i always laugh well now everybody's going to be watching me I'd, I'd have the blade in between my forefinger and my middle finger and i'd put my hand flat down on the mat and i'd lean over next to bobby laying there like i was whispering something and then when my hand would move and be gone his hand would just scoop it right up or whatever some cloak and dagger bullshit like that but it just you know that's that was the thing is you were, you always wanted to try to make it as unnoticeable as possible and and some guys were wizards at it and some guys were fucking horribly blatant and you would just cringe you know now we had a lot of them in the northeast albano bruno when jimmy snuka when they turned on him and he turned baby yeah. face right in front of the camera See, that's the thing. Those guys, and honestly, I mean, Albano was drunk and he was crazy. And I loved him, but he was drunk and he was crazy when he did that shit. But a lot of the guys in the Northeast, they were used to the big buildings where the majority of people were so far away that you could get away with shit. And you thought, and, you know, it, it, it turns out, honestly, you couldn't get away with it. You just thought you were. But they would get that habit, whereas... The guys that, you know, were used to the smaller buildings and people being up close, you know, a 5,000 seat or less building, you know, you got a lot of eyes on you and you need to be smart. And I've, every once in a while when I would need to do it, I would either go underneath the ring for just a second or, you know, whatever the case, like, uh, just to try to avert people's eyes from what I was doing because it was like I had a, neon sign on my head but what you just described is kind of the beginning of the mcmahon style of wrestling because in the southern cities and really in various territories all across the country you had a lot of small towns and a lot of towns where guys couldn't get away with things because people 
we're watching intently, but the McMahon style, which is all about performing for the rafters, it was almost every major city they were in. You had to perform like that. Yeah. And well, and actually that probably is why that the, the most dedicated fans in the Northeast were the first ones to be smart. If, I mean, there's other factors also knowing the guys personally and being around for a long period of time, but you could pick up a lot of shit if you were in the front row at Madison Square Garden or the Boston Garden or the Philly Spectrum or whatever on a regular basis in those days, you know, just from seeing the films, I can say, well, well people could see through a lot of that shit. Well, Jim, our next question sent to corny drive-thru at gmail.com from Paul in Connecticut. Chris Jericho recently... Wait a minute. Is he also known by his three initials? I'm not going to comment any further, but here's a question from Paul in Connecticut. Chris Jericho recently said he hated the word cruiserweight in WCW. The thing was, this is a quote, the thing was, cruiserweight was almost like being a leper. There was such a stigma because I was 200 and fucking 25 pounds. <laughs> I was just as big, as bigger than Shawn Michaels, or just as big as Booker T. What are your thoughts on Jericho's take on being labeled the cruiserweight? Well, I thought they were going to say, what do you think of the name cruiserweight to begin with? And I always thought it was the shits. <laughs> what the fuck? Cruiserweight. Uh, what do you like? Junior heavyweight? Light heavyweight? What do you prefer? I I think of, of all of the terminology, I liked light heavyweight. Junior heavyweight, there was nothing the matter with for years in wrestling until, especially when Danny Hodge was the champion. And there was nothing wrong with junior heavyweight at all. And it was recognized that there was a weight limit, which at various points in the NWA was either, I think, 210 or 225 tops for the junior heavyweight division. And the problem is a lot of guys, especially if you attached the word junior to a heel, and especially if the guys it just magnified or called attention to that they weren't necessarily as big as the other guys where you wouldn't have noticed as much. The junior heavyweight title basically meant the most when Danny Hodge was the champion and was a pro because he was the greatest wrestler the United States had ever produced. And they, they didn't create the title for him, but it was tailor made for him. They don't, you know, there had always been, a couple of weight division titles in Mexico. They got more numerous and they've lasted longer and been over in the United States. In, in the old days in different territories and Tennessee was a junior heavyweight territory at one point, you know, in the forties, the smaller guys, more action. Um, but most of the time it was, you know, heavyweights drew the money. So they started playing with the thing after, after Hodge and after the 70s, the junior heavyweight title wasn't a big deal. Then it became, you know, then somebody came up with a light heavyweight title. Light heavyweight sounds a little bit better. You're, you've, you're accustomed to it from boxing. And it's, you know, right there at heavyweight, light heavyweight. And it doesn't call anybody a junior like they're a child or whatever. So I'll go for light heavyweight cruiserweight what the fuck i mean that that meant nothing in any wrestling context i know in boxing they have 
you know, 18 different weight categories, including, I think, flyweight, bantamweight, featherweight, whatever the fuck. Phantomweight. Bantamweight, not phantomweight. I call it phantomweight. Oh, fan- oh, I see what you're doing. But, that, that, but anyway, they were just trying to not be junior heavyweights and, and not be light heavyweights, a cruiserweight. But that just, it pigeonholed in WCW, it pigeonholed a bunch of the smaller guys, especially the luchadors they brought in from Mexico in an interchangeable group. It was like the X division in TNA. First thing when I got to TNA, Jeff Jarrett wanted me to give my thoughts and write notes on the shows. Uh, so the X division is, I think I termed it the same six guys that get the shit kicked out of them every week and Jay lethal. And that's what cruiserweight thing in WCW turned out to be was that's where they would put all the guys Jericho could compete in the fans eyes. And as a star at that point in time, and as an athlete with any of the top guys on the roster, because he physically looked good and he could work. But when he becomes a cruiserweight, he's pigeonholed in with all of the other interchangeable mid-card and underneath guys that they didn't have anything for and couldn't figure out what to do with just because they were smaller in size. And then it became the kiss of death. What do you think, Brian? I liked light heavyweight. Junior heavyweight I never liked because when I was a kid and I would see pictures in a magazine, Nelson Royal didn't really make me think of (laughs) a modern champion in the 80s. And then he lost to Denny Brown, who... yeah. You know, that that was not very good. No one wanted well, to see Well, at that point, that's when Crockett had ended up with he's the last NWA promotion and they've got the belt. Nelson Royal, because of the the weight that he was at in his fighting years, he would have been the junior heavyweight. I think he was a little over that, but he was a great worker and a great wrestler and everybody respected him. So, okay, we'll give him a world title. But then after that, Dusty didn't give a shit and he'd given up on it. And he just let Denny Brown have it because he liked Denny Brown. You know, I mean, I wasn't as negative on the term cruiserweight because for a while there you had Dean Malenko, Rey Mysterio, like the top of the card guys, the guys going for the belt. Those are the best matches on those shows. The fans treated it seriously. It wasn't like the fans ever shat on it. But, you know, I think to some of those main eventers, the ones who were throwing around the terms like vanilla midgets and to some of the promoters. Well, but now let's face it. Uh, some of the people did shit on some of it because it it it, it was a catch-all basket for all those guys that size to go and remember yes Rey Mysterio got over in that environment and we knew how good Dean Malenko was the smart fans and the dedicated fans the dired fans they weren't shitting on them but during the attitude era especially when you've got several million people watching the show that was a bathroom break for a lot of people because at the time they didn't know who the fuck Rey Mysterio was he was brand fucking new Remember, we got to look with the eyes of that time versus what we know now. And cruiserweight and the cruiserweight division was in a lot of ways just a way to, like you said, just everyone we sign up from ECW or AAA, put them in one division and they can have their high flying matches, whether they're over 225 pounds or not. And yeah, and that was the, the same. The X division in TNA was supposed to be the the action, the flying division or whatever, the modern style division, but then Samoa Joe would win the things. There was no weight, you know, limit or weight 
uh, fucking quotient for it. So it, it, that's what they were trying to do is the same thing. It was the same mentality. Let them have the video game matches. That's what those guys do. And whenever you put a group of guys together like that, just because the style of matches they have, then you've buried all of them because they're interchangeable. What are your thoughts on having a separate division for a different weight class? Is that a thing that makes your life more difficult as a booker or would it make it more easy? No, it, Vince tried to have, remember the light heavyweight title he tried to have for about six weeks uh, because if you've got a guy, again, if you had a Danny Hodge, boy, if we just had a Danny Hodge today, but if you've got a guy that would benefit like a Rey Mysterio, I, I can't remember now 30 years ago and I wasn't there, but if they didn't build the whole thing around him, they should have. If you got a guy you want to build something like that around, but you can't bring in 12, 14 guys just to work with one fucking guy and create his own division. And I think at this point, when there was a traveling junior heavyweight champion that you didn't see all the time, it was kind of another way to have a world title, not quite as meaningful, but it was something. I don't think you need different weight classes now in, in as especially as many titles as they already have in championships and belts in every company. Good God, they've got men's and women's and trios and TV and the regionals and other companies and now weight classes fuck i think that horse may have all left the barn by this point jim our next question relates to something we talked about earlier sent on twitter using a hashtag corny drive through from arthur Pryor. does jim think it is a problem that Sami Zayn has roman jimmy and jay breaking every week like it's the carol burnett show <laughs> should triple h step in and say stop effing around to sammy the bloodline laughing doesn't exactly match the badass aura they have been going for. So what are your thoughts on that take? Well, I don't, he hasn't been doing it every week. I saw it Friday night as this happened. I mean, he's great every week, but I haven't seen him really just you know, breaking down and laughing. But uh, I can see where I would be pissed. As a viewer, I liked it. As a booker, I probably wouldn't like it. Um, but how do you get mad at someone? I mean, it wasn't like he was being overly but, hokey. Well, that's the thing is he wasn't his performance of what he was supposed to do rendered them unable to keep a straight face. Not that he was jacking around, going to business for himself, throwing in little comments or wink, wink or eye rolling and cracked them up that way. It was just what he was supposed to do. And it was funny. And so, yeah. You know, maybe, maybe you've lined the fucking bloodline up and slap them in the face and pinch their balls before they go out. Uh, you know, but I don't think you castigate Sammy for being so good. It just, it's one of those things that happen. If it was a regular thing where they were just laughing in promos all the time, it would kill their goddamn gimmick. But with this, I think everybody saw that regardless of what, you would think or say about wrestling that was it was hard to keep a straight face did you ever break dennis during a promo you know well see the thing is it was hard to tell because dennis had that smirk that he'd do a lot anyway 
I've, Bobby would turn every once in a while at the podium at TBS. That's where I would get him mostly. Bobby would turn every once in a while. Bubba was the challenge. Because remember, he had the stone face, and from the start, it Dusty said, don't break, Bubba. You don't talk, you don't look, you just sit there, you look mean. And he would be, he kept his thumb nail long so that he could dig his right thumbnail into the side of his left hand when he was standing behind me, looking one way and looking the other way with his hands clasped together like a bodyguard. He was digging his fingernail into himself to distract himself and try not to laugh. Or every once in a while, he'd have to wipe his arm across his goddamn face. And I wouldn't, I wasn't trying to do it at the expense of the promo. I was trying to see if I could, you know, especially on pre-tapes at the office, right? If I could get him there, no, no harm, no foul. But I was just trying to see if I could do the promo and still fucking get him every once in a while. I Stan seemed like he was in on the joke. Yeah, Stan just seemed amused at everything that was going on. Regardless, you could <laughs> again, you couldn't really tell if he was cracking up at something or if he was just the Stan Lane, the party guy, sweet Stan, just having fun. And he's always looking at the girls too, so he should be smiling at them. I don't remember ever breaking up on TV, um, uh, myself. But now somebody may send me a a piece of video to prove that wrong, but I don't remember it. But every once in a while, it's been difficult. Did you ever break Vince with something you said? No, Vince On doesn't commentary. break. No, Vince Vince never broke. I mean, he looked at me when I called Shawn Michaels a fornicator that one time on Raw. He looked at me with that aghast look like he had to mull over in his head whether it was okay that I just said that. Was that one of the words you can't say? And by then, the, the moment had passed. I might have broke him on that one, but I don't think so. Not even the worst thing you said. You called Norman the lunatic a child molester once on commentary. Well, yeah, but that wasn't in, that wasn't in front of Vince. <laughs> no, that's true. Did you ever break Jim Ross? Um, yeah, I think so. I can't remember a specific thing. I think we both tickled each other a time or two, to be honest. Jim, our next question is our last question here today, sent on Twitter using the hashtag corny drive through from Ben Nicky. Ben Nicky? Bend, B E N D, Nicky. Oh, Bend Nicky. That's right. All right. When did choking become legal in wrestling? Sleepers were legal, but the blatant choke wasn't. Now you could choke a guy out and win the match. <laughs> Why? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the UFC, as best I can tell. And now here's, maybe you know this, Brian. I am assuming that still a double-handed, around-the-throat throttle choke from the mount is still illegal in the UFC. I don't see it often, if at all. I assume that's still illegal, right? I would believe so, and I don't think I've seen that in wrestling in a while either, actually, now that you say that. Well, no, because remember they fucking said they didn't want anybody to do that, and they fired Brian Danielson 10 years ago in the WWF. No, the first thing I'm going to do is a heel. You haven't seen me wrestle in a while, thank goodness. But the first thing I would do is I'd get on top of the baby face and fucking strangle him because I'm a pussy and I want to win by many, any means necessary. But it's what they've, they've told the guys not to do anymore because kids might imitate it. But having said that, it used to be, yes, a sleeper was called legal because it compressed 
the carotid arteries in your neck and cut the flow of blood off to the brain. And that's, and this is legitimate. And that's why you passed out and not because of lack of oxygen. And now with the rear naked choke, you're kind of performing the same function, but also, you know, you can't really goddamn breathe either in that type of thing. But it's not, when you're, when you're double-handed choking somebody, you're just depriving their air, period. But when, you, when you've got either a sleeper or the rear naked choke or whatever, you are technically compressing the arteries and cutting off the blood flow. And either one will make you pass out. It's just they've decided that that one's legal in, in the UFC and MMA now, so wrestling has picked that up. So, yes, a choke, and it, it used to be that, that the referees would signify that when you had a properly applied sleeper hold in wrestling that it was not on the throat, couldn't be on the throat. There was never any change of those rules except all of a sudden MMA got popular and they were doing it, so the wrestlers started doing it too. And no, when you look at it like that, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened. Do you think too many people in or around wrestling use the success of UFC and the rise of MMA as a reason to change things in wrestling that you may not need to change? The idea that, well, you can now have smaller guys be bigger guys because the UFC established that, you know, smaller guys could be deadly black belts too. Yeah. You know, that argument now, you can't have guys win the same way they used to because people have been exposed to all new things with UFC. I've never bought those arguments at all because I always thought you're assuming every wrestling fan's a UFC fan and you're assuming every wrestling fan gives a fuck about what happens in, happens in the UFC or boxing or anything else. Yeah. Well, and that's correct. There was a crossover, especially in the early days, the Ultimate Fighter and the correlation with Raw and then the Ultimate Fighter following on Spike or whatever. There was a big correlation of fans and, and there was a crossover. And yes, you can take a variety of things from mixed martial arts and the UFC and apply them to pro wrestling. It doesn't mean you have to did you have you had to do everything. And with Ring of Honor, I was excited that here's a in the late 2000s, here's a hot new sport. A lot of the being MMA and UFC, a hot new sport, but a lot of the guys in Ring of Honor have cross trained in mixed martial arts, and it's a hand to hand combat. And they exhibit that influence in their wrestling style, and that's good. It's youthful, it's young, it's different. It's a hot new sport, it's athletic, it's a real sport. Let's try to mimic that instead of this goddamn dog and pony show sports entertainment bullshit. But by the same token, that doesn't mean that you can have the 130-pound fucking Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt arm bar and tap out your 280-pound fucking former pro football player that everybody knows who he is because he might be a star one of these days. You still have to work things. And it doesn't all have to be. Or now just suddenly matches just end out of nowhere with no build to the finish because that's the way they do in the UFC. Sometimes there's a build to the finish in the UFC. It builds to a crescendo. They just didn't plan it that way, but it does. And when you have the ability to plan a crescendo, you ought to take advantage of that ability. 
So, yeah, just ending the matches with a tap out out of nowhere with no build or giving neither guy an out or whatever, that's a a thing that we could have done without. There's some good influences, and with everything, there's some bad influences. People go too far, go whole hog, whatever the fuck. Do you think UFC's popularity over the last 25 years and whatever portion of the wrestling audience that is, does that mean that you could never get a, a move that on the face of it is somewhat ridiculous? Although, you know, if you apply the claw to someone, you could hurt them if they have a small head or whatever yeah, it may be. Or you've got a big hand. Or yeah. you have a big hand. It could really hurt. But the idea of the claw being a finisher or like the stomach claw, like these are things that are ridiculous to people, even with the UFC being as popular as it is. Do you think in this day and age, if you took something like the claw or the stomach claw and you got it over each and every week with someone who people actually care about on TV, it could still work even in this era of the UFC? Yes. It, it, if, if it's somebody that people care about and they're doing it in a fashion that doesn't slap you in the face with being phony or silly or unrealistic, you can get anything over. It's just the way you do it and the way that you approach it. And again, you know, the, the stomach claw is let Dick the bruiser put the stomach claw on you and see whether it's fucking real or not. You know, I mean, there's, there's elements of there, there are certain elements of people who think that everything in wrestling is and always has been bullshit. And that's not, true the figure four leg lock you can fuck somebody up with if you if you fucking want to and if you have it on them you can fuck them up whether or not you could apply it on a trained skilled fighter without their cooperation is another issue but all this shit hurts in one fashion or another you just get somebody if andre the giant's finish had been the claw people would have bought the fucking claw because look at this hands size of catcher's mitts but now it's just, it's harder. The bar of proof is harder these days because everybody thinks everything is bullshit. Your shit has to look better or be more different or in some way be more legitimate. You can't get away with everything you used to because people are looking for it now. But you can get almost anything over in the, certain, in the right circumstance and with certain individuals. Well, with that, we'll see how over we are. The drive-thru is closed. Let's get a song. You might not be over, but I'm done. Well, let's get a song. This one, a farewell to... This is from... <laughs> this new one sent in from Lior is an AEW farewell song to my locker room hero, CM Punk, it says. Let's go to Israel and Lior. Buyout is near, <laughs> and so I face the final bullshit. My fans, I sit it in the scrum. I've stated the truth, of which I am certain. I have wrestled a year that it's full. I draw a million dollar gates and boost their ratings and I did more 
much more than your EVPs, Tony. I did it my way. That's not how the song goes. Regrets I didn't have. And then I start to work with children. And then I had a few regrets. I did. But it's good for the company. And then I saw their jealousy so the plan was to blame me about the firing of Cabana and they took each step and cried you and stabbed me in the back <laughs> and they did more much more than this they did their old shit stain way <laughs> yes there are promo clinic and I bled I've did my part my share to the company and now Tony you have no balls and I thought it also unamusing to think that you chose your friends over business going oh yes <laughs> eventually i did it my way well there it is fresh wow. from israel leor with my way you know, he's the most clever lyricist because I never can figure out where he's going. When I think I finally got it figured out, he takes a left turn. <laughs> At Albuquerque. 
at Albuquerque, but there it is, another fine song. And with that, the drive-thru is closed. Jim, any comments on Lior's song, this channel? Uh, just, uh, again, I'm amazed at Lior's cunning uh, lyricism and amazing wordsmithery, and the phrasing is Sinatra-like. You mean dead? But anyway, <laughs> the drive-thru is closed. We'll be back next week with another episode of the drive-thru. And of course, this weekend, the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast, go through the archives today. Patreon.com slash Cornette. $5 a month gets you access to the drive-thru and the experience going back to 2013, the beginning of the show. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Don't forget about the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to The Wrestling News at TheWrestlingNews.com or go on Twitter at WrestlingNewsAV, wherever you find your favorite podcast, free daily wrestling newscast with nothing but news, no opinion, The Wrestling News. Jim, what's going on at Coronet's Collectibles? Chaos, Ollie! <laughs> at JimCoronet.com. <laughs> All right. Well, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692- 8084. Get even with Steven at newlawoffice.com. Did we get everything in? I think we got everything in. Until this weekend on The Experience and next week back here on the drive-thru for my mute friend and me. I'm the great crying last. Tally-ho! I gotta pee again. Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fuck and Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Tony's drive-thru Well, it's all elite wrestling Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. 
All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.